This meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, will come to order. <clears throat> I want to begin this hearing by expressing my condolences to the family of Boris Nemtsov and the people of Russia. The murder of Russian opposition leader Boris Nemtsov just outside the Kremlin appears to be an attempt to silence those in Russia who want to see their country move away from the authoritarianism, corruption, and lawlessness of today's Russia. Boris Nemtsov sought a better future for his people, and we must main, remain committed to his vision for a democratic Russia at peace with itself and its neighbors. He was especially critical of Putin's aggression in Ukraine, where for over a year now, Russia has continued its occupation of Crimea and the destabilization of the country's eastern regions. Our country made a commitment in 1994 to defend Ukraine's sovereignty and its territorial integrity which has been under a near-constant assault by Russia for more than a year. More recently, we lured Ukraine west by supporting their desire for closer association with Europe. Now, with Ukraine's future in balance, the refusal of the administration to step up with more robust support for Ukraine and further pressure on Russia is a blight on U.S. policy in 70 years of defending a Europe that is whole, democratic, and free. The conflict in eastern Ukraine was started by a Russian-backed mercenaries, now directly, now directly involves thousands of Russian military personnel, and has resulted in over 6,000 deaths and generated 1.5 million refugees and internally displaced persons. For roughly two weeks after the second Minsk ceasefire agreement was signed on February 12th, the Russian-backed rebels continued their offensive activities, ultimately acquiring the strategic railway hub Debaltsevo. The determination of the rebels to secure Debaltsevo despite the fact that the Minsk ceasefire agreement required them to withdraw to a demarcation line established last September shows that Putin has no intention of honoring the ceasefire. While the violence has subsided since the rebels achieved their short-term objective and acquired Debaltsevo, the Minsk ceasefire is far from being a success. In addition to the ambiguous constitutional electoral conditions required of Ukraine to regain control of its borders, the second Minsk agreement is burdened by the failure of the first Minsk agreement um, as it stands. In fact, administration officials have repeatedly referred to the, to the recent Minsk Accord as an implementation agreement of the first Minsk Accord. But jumping from ceasefire to ceasefire in hope of convincing Russian-backed rebels to fulfill the same commitments they continually renege on is not a strategy, and certainly not a strategy for success. In my view, any strategy will not be effective unless the United States begins to provide Ukraine with the ability to inflict serious military cost using defensive weapons on the thousands of Russian troops operating in its eastern regions. regions. Ukraine Freedom Support Act, which originated in this committee, passed unanimously by Congress and signed into law by the President, authorizes $350 million in lethal military assistance to Ukraine. But yesterday, we heard Germans, Germany's ambassador to the United States say that President Obama privately pledged to Chancellor Merkel in February that the United States will not deliver lethal military assistance to Ukraine, despite the fact that he and other administration officials continue to tell the American public that they are seriously considering this policy. 
Deputy Secretary of State Tony Blinken argued last week in Berlin that no amount of lethal military assistance for Ukraine would be sufficient to defeat the rebels and their Russian sponsors. But our objective is, not, objective is not to provide Ukraine with enough weapons to overwhelm the Russian military in direct confrontation. Rather, the provision of lethal assistance aims to increase Ukraine's defense capabilities in a way that will give Kiev the ability to produce conditions on the ground favorable to a general, genuine peace process. By equipping Ukraine with the means to impose a greater military cost on Russia, the United States will be contributing to a quicker, fair, and more stable settlement of the conflict. But our support for Ukraine must go beyond simply imposing cost on Russia. Ukraine's foreign currency reserves have diminished to a month's worth of imports. The Ukrainian, Ukrainian currency has lost 80% of its value since April 2014, and its economy continues to teeter on the brink of collapse. At the same time, while I believe the government in Kiev is generally committed to reform, more needs to be done by the Ukrainian authority, authorities to move forward with these reforms, especially in the energy sector where corruption siphons, siphons billions of dollars away from the budget each year. Even if the United States does more to help Ukraine and Kiev defeats the Russian-backed rebels, but the Ukrainian economy implodes in the process, we have failed and Putin has succeeded. As a matter of fact, He's had an even greater success if that occurs. This is why the United States must have a comprehensive strategy that will both counter Russian aggression, but also drive political, economic, and anti-corruption reforms in Ukraine. During this hearing, I hope to have a detailed discussion that explores the situation in eastern Ukraine since the Minsk ceasefire agreement was signed, examines why the United States has failed to provide Ukraine with lethal military assistance, and considers additional ways to support Ukraine with its ongoing economic challenges. I look forward to your testimony. I thank you for being here. And now I'll turn it over to our distinguished ranking member for his opening comments. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding what is an extraordinarily important and timely hearing um, on countering Russia and the Ukraine. And I appreciate our witnesses being here. Uh, let me join you in very heartfelt condolences to uh, someone who was a courageous opposition leader. And sometimes true patriots pay a price. Uh, Boris Nemtsov uh, led uh, efforts in which he passionately believed in, in a different Russia. And uh, I find it pretty outrageous to see the latest narrative that is being portrayed that an Islamist plot is the reason why he was assassinated. Uh, but to his family, his friends, and his followers, uh, uh, we have our, our heartfelt thoughts and condolences. Now, as it relates to today's hearings, there are many experts who would contend that the complexity of the geopolitics that led to the US retreat from Europe created an opening for Putin in the Ukraine. Clearly, we must closely coordinate with our European friends for the sanctions against Russia to work. But I think, without any doubt, we can all agree on one point, and that is that the United States must take the lead. I believe the administration should fully implement measures in the Ukraine Freedom Support Act, which the President signed into law on December 18th. The legislation passed with unanimous consent in both houses of Congress. 
It authorizes the President to provide much-needed military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine, and it imposes additional sanctions against Russia. This legislation was necessary in December, and it is certainly necessary today. Now, we all want a diplomatic solution, but I believe this can only come about when Putin believes that the cost of continuing to ravage Ukraine is simply too high. Providing non-lethal equipment like night vision goggles is all well and good, but giving Ukrainians the ability to see Russians coming, but not the weapons to stop them, is not the answer. Night vision goggles are one thing, but providing anti-tank and anti-armor weapons, tactical troop-operated surveillance drones, secure command and communications equipment would be far better. And frankly, I'm disappointed that the administration required to report to Congress on its plan for increasing military assistance to Ukraine on February the 15th has yet to send us that report. I was glad to join with Senator Corker in sending a letter to the President yesterday on the importance of providing defensive weapons and that we need to see this overdue report. In my view, it's time to impose additional targeted sanctions on the Russian energy sector to add to existing sanctions that are already costing the Russian economy about $140 billion per year, or about 7% of its economy. The administration should tighten restrictions on the development of shale deposits, Arctic drilling, and offshore drilling. I think the last thing we want to do is use American technology to create a Russian shale revolution that could only extend its reach into Europe and beyond. The Ukraine Freedom Support Act called for the administration to impose sanctions on other defense industry targets as well as on special Russian crude oil projects by January 31st, and I am still waiting for the administration's response. At the end of the day, the most effective sanction is an economically viable and stable Ukraine. The U.S. may provide an additional $1 billion in loan guarantees towards the end of this year, on top of the $2 billion in guarantees already provided. In my view, this is a worthy investment, and it needs to be matched by continued reforms by the Ukrainians. Finally, I think we need to reinforce the transatlantic agenda. We must take a more strategic approach in facing this resurgent Russia. First, we need to reinvigorate the institutions that have for so long contributed to the transatlantic relationship and peace and stability. We need to sharpen our arsenal of response options, and that means NATO and EU integration, and adapting them to today's realities. In my view, the attention on Europe's east in confronting the threat from Russia has been necessary. We also need to focus on the south, also vulnerable to undue Russian influence. We need to strengthen security and economic relationships in the Balkans, especially in Serbia, Montenegro, Bulgaria, and Bosnia. Second, our intelligence community also needs to reprioritize the Russian threat, not only by addressing the immediate security threat in Ukraine, but across the board in Europe. And third is communications. I understand the administration is working with the Broadcasting Board of Governors to commit a little over $23 million to Russian language programming, which is a 49% increase over FY14. I think that and other diplom public diplomacy funds are incredibly important to counter Russian propaganda, which when I traveled to the region last year and have listened to those who have visited us from the region have said they are overwhelmed by Russian propaganda. There's one key point, and at the end of the day, that is that strong American leadership is what will matter. Mr. Chairman, I ask that the totality of my statement be included in the record, and I thank you for the opportunity. Uh, without objection, absolutely. Uh, we want to thank you for the comments, and we'll turn to the witnesses. Our first
On our first panel, our first witness is Victoria Newland, Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. Our second witness today is Brian McKeon, Principal Deputy, Principal, Principal Deputy Sec, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Big title, thank you. Our third witness is Ramin Tululi, Assistant Secretary of Treasury for International Finance. Our fourth and final witness on the first panel is Vice Admiral Frank Pandoff, Director for Strategic Plans and Policy at the Joint Staff. We thank you all for being here, sharing your thoughts and viewpoints. We'll remind you that your full statement uh, will be entered into the record without objection. And so if you would, please summarize about five minutes or so. And we'll be, we look forward to our questions. Again, thank you all very much for being here. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, members of this committee. Thank you for the opportunity to join you today to talk about the situation in Ukraine and for the personal investment that so many of you have made in that country's future. Today, Ukraine is central to our 25-year transatlantic quest for a Europe whole, free, and at peace. My interagency colleagues and I are pleased to update you on U.S. efforts to support Ukraine as it works to liberate the country from its corrupt oligarchic past and chart a more democratic European future and to bring an end to the Russian and separatist aggression. In my remarks, I'll focus on two areas today. First, the work that Ukraine is doing with U.S. and international support to reform the country, to tackle corruption, and to strengthen democratic institutions. Second, I'll give an update on our efforts to support the implementation of the February and September Minsk agreements, including our readiness to impose further costs on Russia if the commitments Moscow made are further violated. Ukraine's leaders in the executive branch and the parliament know that they are in a race against time and external pressure to clean up the country and enact the difficult and socially painful reforms required to kickstart the economy and to meet their commitments to their own people, to the IMF, and to the international community. The package of reforms already put forward by the government and enacted by the RADA is impressive in its scope and in its political courage. Just last week, the Ukrainians passed budget reform, which is expected to slash the, the deficit significantly this year and to give more fiscal control to local communities and spur economic and political decentralization. They've made tough choices in just the last few days to reduce and cap pension benefits and to phase in a higher retirement age as requested by the IMF. They've created new banking provisions to stiffen penalties for stripping assets from the banks at the public's expense, a common practice among oligarchs. And they've passed laws cutting wasteful gas subsidies and closing the space for corrupt middlemen who buy low, sell high, and rip off the Ukrainian people. Ukraine will use the $400 million in increased revenue from these measures uh, to care for the 1.7 million people who've been driven from their homes by the conflict. With U.S. support, with your support on this committee and in this Congress, including a $1 billion loan guarantee last year and $355 million in foreign assistance and technical advisors, the Ukrainian government is improving energy efficiency in homes and factories with metering, consumer in incentives, and infrastructure improvements, building e-governance platforms to make procurement more transparent and basic government services cleaner and more publicly accessible. They're putting a newly trained force of beat cops on, on the streets in Kiev who will protect, not shake down the citizens, a prototype of what they hope to do nationwide. 
They're reforming the Prosecutor General's Office, supported by U.S. law enforcement and criminal justice advisors to help energize law enforcement and increase prosecutions. With the help of USAID export, uh, experts, they're deregulating the agriculture sector and allowing family farmers to sell more of their produce in local and regional and wholesale markets. And they're helping those who are forced to flee Donetsk and Luhansk with new jobs and skills training in places like Kharkiv. And there's more support on the way. The President's FY16 budget request includes $513.5 million to build on these efforts. And as you said, Mr. Ranking Member and Mr. Chairman, Ukraine's hard work must continue. Between now and the summer, we must see continued budget discipline and tax collection enforced across the country, notably including on some of Ukraine's richest citizens who have enjoyed tax impunity for far too long. We need to see continued reforms at Naftogaz and across the energy sector. We need to see final passage of agricultural legislation, full and impartial implementation of anti-corruption measures, including a commitment to break the oligarchic, kleptocratic culture that has ripped off the country for too long. Uh, as you both said in your opening statements, the best antidote to Russian aggression and maligned influence is for Ukraine to succeed as a democratic free market state. For this to happen, we have to help ensure that the Ukrainian government lives up to its promises to its own people and keeps the trust of the international financial community. But at the same time, the United States and Europe and the international community must keep faith with Ukraine and help ensure that Russia's aggression and meddling can't crash Ukraine's spirit, its will, or its economy before reforms take hold. That brings me to my second point. Even as Ukraine is building a more peaceful, democratic, independent nation across 93% of its territory, Crimea and parts of, Ukraine, of eastern Ukraine have, have suffered a reign of terror. In eastern Ukraine, Russia and its separatist puppets have unleashed unspeakable violence and pillage. This is a manufactured conflict controlled by the Kremlin, fueled by Russian tanks and heavy weapons, and financed at Russian taxpayers' expense. It's cost the lives of more than 6,000 Ukrainians, and hundreds of young Russians have also lost their lives in eastern Ukraine, sent there to fight and die by the Kremlin. And when they come home in zinc coffins, cargo 200, which is the Russian euphemism for war dead, their mothers and their wives and their children are told not to ask too many questions or raise a fuss if they ever want to see death benefits. Throughout this conflict, the United States and the EU have worked in lockstep to impose successive rounds of tough sanctions, including sectoral sanctions on Russia and its separatist cronies as the costs for their actions. Our unity with Europe remains the cornerstone of our policy towards this crisis and a fundamental source of our strength. It's in that spirit that we salute the efforts of German Chancellor Merkel and French President Hollande in Minsk on February 12th to try again to end the fighting in eastern Ukraine. The Minsk package of agreements, the September 5th and 19th agreements, and the February 12th implementing agreement offer a real opportunity for peace, disarmament, political normalization and decentralization in Ukraine, and the return of Ukrainian state sovereignty in the east and border control. For some eastern Ukrainians, conditions have already begun to improve. 
The OSCE reports that the ceasefire is holding on many parts of the line of contact. There have been significant withdrawals already of government of Ukraine heavy weapons, and some separatist heavy weapons have also been withdrawn, although that process is incomplete, as is OSCE access. And in uh, the little village in southeast Donetsk of Kominternova, demining has already begun under OSCE auspices. But the picture is very min mixed. Uh, just yesterday, shelling continued in Shirokina, a key village on the way to Mariupol and outside Donetsk over the weekend. As I said, access for OSCE monitors, particularly in separatist-controlled areas, remains spotty. And just in the last few days, we can confirm new transfers of Russian tanks, armored vehicles, heavy artillery, and rocket equipment over the border to the separatists in eastern Ukraine. So in the coming days, days not weeks, here's what we need to see. A complete ceasefire in all parts of eastern Ukraine, full unfettered access to the whole conflict zone, a pullback of all heavy weapons, and an end to uninspected convoys of cargo over the Ukrainian border. If fully implemented, this will bring greater peace and security in eastern Ukraine for the first time in almost a year. As the President has said, we will judge Russia by its actions, not by its words. And the United States will, with our international partners, start rolling back sanctions on Russia, but only when the Minsk agreements are fully implemented. The reverse is also true. If these uh, are not implemented, there will be more sanctions, and we have already begun consultations with our European partners on further sanctions pressure should Russia continue fueling the fire in the east or in other parts of Ukraine, fail to implement Minsk, or grab more land, as we saw in Debaltseva after the agreements were signed. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, members of this committee, America's investment in Ukraine is about far more than protecting the choice of a single European country. It's about protecting the rules-based system across Europe and globally. It's about saying no to borders changed by force, to big countries intimidating their neighbors or demanding a sphere of <coughs> influence. We thank this committee for its bipartisan support and commitment to the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine and to a Europe whole free and at peace. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Senator Menendez. Appreciate the opportunity to appear before you today. Uh, having spent nearly half of my professional life on the staff of this committee under then Senator Biden, uh, it feels good to be back in this room, although a little daunting to be on this side of the witness table. Uh, the statement I've submitted to the committee, which I will now summarize, is on behalf of myself and Admiral Pandolf. So we'll save a little time on the back end. Uh, I won't repeat the state of play on the Minsk agreement, which Tory Assistant Secretary Newland has just summarized. Since the beginning of this crisis, the United States has vigorously pursued a multi-pronged approach in response to Russia's aggression in Ukraine. We have raised the cost to Russia for its actions, reassured allies of our unwavering support to their security, and provided tangible support to Ukraine to help it through the crisis. Working closely with Europe and other partners and allies, the administration has imposed real costs on Russia for its aggressive actions. The Department of Defense has halted defense and military cooperation with Russia. The administration has also prohibited exports of sensitive technologies that could be used in Russia's military modernization and has imposed blocking sanctions on 18 Russian defense technology firms. 
Second, we are taking visible, concrete measures to reassure our allies and partners in Europe and to deter further Russian aggression. Thanks to Congress, the European Reassurance in Initiative, or ERI, is helping the Department to increase and sustain and enhance U.S. air, sea, and ground presence in Europe and to improve facilities needed to reinforce allies along the border with Russia. Additionally, ERI funds will be used to bolster our assistance to Ukraine and to the Baltic partners. As part of our reassurance measures, we've maintained a persistent presence of U.S. military forces in each of the Baltic states, Poland, and the Black Sea since April of last year. We've also had a near persistent presence in Romania and Bulgaria. We've tripled the number of U.S. aircraft taking part in our Baltic air policing rotation, provided refueling aircraft for NATO airborne warning and control system missions, deployed U.S. Navy ships to the Black and Baltic Seas 14 times, and increased training fights, flights in Poland. In the coming year, using ERI funds, we will increase our reassurance and deterrence efforts with additional measures, which are detailed in my prepared statement. Similarly, NATO has taken concrete steps to reassure the Allies and to deter Russia. These measures are defensive, proportionate, and fully in line with our obligations under the North Atlantic Treaty to provide for collective defense of the Alliance. Allies have also agreed to measures as part of NATO's readiness action plan that will improve the Alliance's long-term military posture and capabilities and ensure it is ready to respond swiftly and firmly to new security challenges. Last month, NATO defense ministers decided to enhance the NATO response force by creating a spearhead force known as a Very High Readiness Joint Task Force, which will be able to deploy on very short notice. The task force consists of a land component of around 5,000 troops with an appropriate mix of air, maritime, and special operations forces units. It aims to strengthen the Alliance's collective defense and ensure that NATO has the right forces in the right place at the right time. Third, we are providing substantial support to Ukraine as it deals with simultaneous economic and military crises. Ukraine has been a strong partner of the United States and NATO since independence, and our security cooperation with Ukraine dates back to 1992. During this period, the United States provided Ukraine with military training, professional education, communications equipment, and support for border control and counter-proliferation efforts. Unfortunately, the corruption of the Yanukovych regime starved Ukraine's armed forces of resources. The neglect of the armed forces by the regime did not, however, strip the military of its professionalism or its determination to fight. Since the beginning of the crisis, the United States has increased its security assistance to Ukraine. We have committed, as you know, $118 million in material and training assistance to the military, the National Guard, and the Border Guard Service. Under ERI, in the coming year, we will dedicate at least another $120 million, including $45 million for State Department security assistance programs. Our assistance has been consistent with identified Ukrainian needs and priorities and is vetted by our country team in Kyiv and a flag-level U.S.-Ukraine Joint Commission that continues to assess how to maximize the effect and impact of our assistance. Key areas of assistance include sustainment items, medical support, personal protective gear, secure communications, and perimeter security. We've also provided counter-mortar radar capabilities, which the Ukrainians tell us they have used to good effect. Similarly, we are also conducting, continuing to conduct long-standing exercise, such as rapid Trident, to increase interoperability among Ukraine, the United States, NATO, and Partnership for Peace member nations. The most recent iteration of rapid Trident last September included a multinational field training exercise saw the participation of 15 countries and approximately 1,300 personnel. 
Other measures remain under active consideration in the administration, including the provision of additional security assistance. As the President has said most recently this weekend, we are looking at all our options, including the possibility of lethal defensive weapons. At the same time, we have made clear we do not believe there is a military solution to the conflict in Ukraine, and we are working actively to support the diplomatic track, as Assistant Secretary Newland outlined. In conclusion, Russia's aggressive actions in Ukraine are a threat to the bipartisan objective of American policy since the end of the Cold War, of seeking a Europe whole, free, and at peace. The United States will continue to work closely with our Ukrainian and European partners to counter these actions and provide reassurance and support to our partners and NATO allies. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you. Mr. Tully. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today on the U.S. government's actions to support Ukraine's economy. The objective of the U.S. and, interna and, and international economic assistance strategy toward Ukraine has been to support the efforts of President Poroshenko's government to stabilize, revitalize, and restructure Ukraine's economy. My remarks today will elaborate upon this strategy and its evolution over the past year in response to the conflict in eastern Ukraine. I would note that our efforts to mobilize the international effort to support Ukraine financially have been complemented by the work of others at the Treasury Department to impose costs on Russia for its aggressive actions in Crimea and eastern Ukraine that have exacerbated the challenges facing Ukraine's economy. Last spring, the United States, together with international partners, supported an international assistance package totaling $27 billion. This assistance centered on a two-year, $17 billion IMF program and also included a $1 billion U.S. loan guarantee and $2.2 billion from the European Union. The IMF and other donors agree that Ukraine has lived up to its economic reform commitments made in exchange for this support. Over the last year, the Ukrainian government has initiated steps to reduce the deficit and distortionary natural gas subsidies, improve targeting of social assistance, strengthen the rule of law and reduce corruption, increase transparency within the inefficient state-owned energy company, and initiate financial sector repair. This is very much the comprehensive approach to reform, Chairman Corker, that you referred to. In support of these efforts, Treasury advisors are providing the Ukrainian government with technical assistance. This was always going to be a challenging program of reform and adjustment. Unfortunately, the intensification of Russian aggression has created significant additional pressure on Ukraine's economy and necessitated further international support to bolster the government's reform efforts. As such, during the past few months, we have mobilized the international community to increase Ukraine's support package by at least $10 billion. Further, the IMF now plans to support Ukraine through the end of 2018 with a larger gross financing package, allowing more time for the economy to adjust and for economic reforms to bear fruit. As part of that international effort, the United States intends to provide a new $1 billion loan guarantee in the first half of 2015, provided Ukraine remains on track with the reform program it has agreed with the IMF. If Ukraine continues making concrete progress on its economic reform agenda and conditions warrant, the U.S. administration will also be willing, working with Congress, to consider providing an additional up to $1 billion loan guarantee in late 2015. The next step in further driving this augmented international assistance effort is to secure IMF board approval on March 11th, tomorrow, for the new IMF program. 
To meet its reform requirements in advance of the IMF board meeting, the Ukrainian government has passed meaningful reform measures to improve public financing and reduce inefficient energy subsidies. Provided that the authorities adhere to the reform program and the security situation does not deteriorate further, the IMF projects that Ukraine's economy will expand in 2016 and foreign exchange reserves will rise substantially. In view of the inherent uncertainties in the security situation, there continue to be risks. This year's intensification of the conflict has imposed severe damage on an already fragile economy. Currency depreciation and deposit flight have put a strain on the banking sector, and significant structural damage has occurred within Ukraine's economy. Amid these challenges, Ukraine's ambitious reform agenda deserves our continued support. Core U.S. global security interests are at stake in Ukraine, and providing economic support to the Ukrainian government is an essential part of our strategy to respond to Russian aggression. As long as Ukraine's government continues to undertake difficult reforms, the international community must do all it can to support, uh, to help Ukraine succeed and be prepared to adapt its assistance strategy as required. At the same time, the international community must continue to ensure that as long as Russia disregards its commitments and fuels violence and instability in Ukraine, the cost for Russia will continue to rise. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee, as with all emerging market crises, our assistance strategy is not without risk and the path to success is not without obstacles, particularly amid the current security backdrop. However, critical elements needed for success, an ambitious reform program, a government and country committed to change, and a sizable international support package are currently in place. To that end, we'll continue to work closely with our international partners to provide Ukraine the support it needs. The strong backing of Congress has been a critical foundation to these efforts to support Ukraine, and we look forward to working closely together in the months ahead. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. We thank each of you for your testimony, and Admiral Pandolf for being here um, to answer questions. And uh, I'll begin with you, Secretary Newland. I, I know in the past you have characterized uh, what Russia has done in Ukraine as an invasion. Is that description, does that still stand with you? We have used that term in the past. And are using that again today? Uh, I'm comfortable with that word. And just for the record, since Russia does not acknowledge the deaths of uh, their soldiers, if you will, publicly, how many Russian um, soldiers do you think have been killed in Ukraine? as part of this conflict? Well, Mr. Chairman, as you can imagine, it's pretty difficult to have a completely accurate assessment given Russia's efforts to yeah. mask its dead, but we what is estimate our intelligence it's in the guess? hundreds and hundreds. Hundreds and hundreds? I, the numbers, I thought, were substantially higher than that, so under 1,000? Uh, Chairman, I can't speak to more than uh, four or 500 at the moment, but if we have a better number for you in the future, we'll come back to you. Okay, good. I, I know that uh, you've been a strong advocate publicly for support in Ukraine and, and uh, um, have been a good person for us to talk to both by phone and here as a witness. What, what is the administration's uh, position right now on Debaltsevo as far as what are our demands regarding their withdrawal, Russia's, the rebels' withdrawal from that area and by what timeline? Well, Mr. Chairman, as you know, and I think it's in my longer statement, uh, we were extremely 
concerned to see the flattening of Debaltseva <coughs> after the signing of the Minsk Agreement. Debaltseva is outside, is in, in uh, outside of the special status territory, so it's territory that the government of Ukraine did have control of. Under the Minsk agreements, uh, there is supposed to be a complete withdrawal to the lines agreed in, on September 19th. So that would include the vacating of Debaltseva by the separatists. So we're demanding that they leave. Is that the U.S. position and by what date? That, that is the position that Minsk calls for and we support Minsk, yes. And, and, and what is that date? What is the timeline by which uh, they have to, to step back away from Debaltseva? Well, the agreement, uh, the implementation agreement of February 12th calls for the pull, full pullback of wet, heavy weapons and, and military equipment within uh, some 16 days. We're already, you know, beyond that, but they are working on it. With regard to uh, when the they're, they're working on it, Russia's working on that? Uh, as I said in my testimony, we've seen incomplete compliance in terms of OSCE access, including in Debaltseva, incomplete compliance in terms of OSCE uh, being able to verify the pullback of separatist heavy weapons. But at the when you get to the political phase of Minsk, which is to follow this, the political jurisdiction of the special status zone does not include the town of Debaltseva, so that will be... You know, if the, if the separatists comply, they should be um, not insisting on having political control of that area by spring. Secretary McKean, we appreciate you coming here today and sitting on that side. Um, Secretary Carter and, and uh, our chief of joint chief, uh, our joint chief Dempsey, have both talked about the fact that they'd like to see defensive weaponry uh, supported. Our Secretary Newland, I know, has advocated for that. Um, we've uh, passed that unanimously out of both houses, at least passed it unanimously out of the Senate. It came out of the House. Um, there seems to be some debate within the administration, and ob obviously the German ambassador thinks the president has made quiet commitments that we're not going to do that. What, what is the status of this debate within the administration where we're all getting mixed signals and very confused by the stance the administration is taking? Uh, Senator Corker, I can't speak to what happened in the bilateral meeting between the President and Chancellor Merkel, so I, I just can't. Well, give can you, you speak to, to where we are in this debate? <clears throat> I can. Uh, it probably won't be a very satisfying answer, sir. We're still working in the interagency on reviewing a number of options, including lethal defensive weapons, uh, but I can't give you a timetable on when we might have a decision on additional assistance. You mentioned the 120, you said 118 million dollars and other kinds of assistance. Uh, but it's my understanding uh, we've committed 118 or 120. We've only delivered half of that. Is that is that correct? About half. That's correct. So just for what it's worth, this feels just like uh, three years ago, the Syrian opposition, where basically we were going to help with all these things we were going to do. We were going to deliver trucks. They got there way beyond their, their usefulness. Um, what is happening? I mean, I, we have Secretary Newland come in. She speaks strongly. We see her in Munich. She speaks strongly. We thank her for that. And yet the administration 
doesn't do even what it said it would do. I mean, what, what is going on with the administration? It's incredibly frustrating for all of us to think the administration truly supports Ukraine, and yet it feels like uh, they're playing footsie with Russia. There's something else that's happening. They're not really committed to this. And I'm wondering if you could speak clearly to what is happening. Senator Corker, what I could say is uh, we share your frustration about the speed of the delivery of our commitments, and the new secretary has has pressed us on this. In fact, in one of my first meetings with him, he said to us, uh, let's start a new policy. Let's not promise to assistance unless we can deliver it quickly. And, and so, what would keep us from being able to deliver $118 million worth of non-lethal assistance? It, it's a range of things, sir. Some, it's a case of finding it in the stocks of the United States military. In the case of some equipment, we're purchasing it off the production line. Uh, I can tell you that the head of our Defense Security Cooperation Agency has made this a high priority, and we're pushing him all the time. In the case of the counter-mortar radars uh, is a good example. We got approval for those in late October, and we got them delivered, trained, and fielded within two months. So we are able to move quickly in some instances. In other instances, it is unacceptably slow, but I, I can assure you we're making it a top priority. I just can't explain why. Yeah. In some circumstances, it goes slower than we would like. And we know this is not your decision. We appreciate you being the messenger. But as Secretary Newland has said, that Russia has invaded Ukraine. We agreed to protect their territorial sovereignty. In 1994, they gave up 1,240 nuclear weapons, and we agreed to protect that. And, and now, as Russia has invaded, we're still not willing to, to give defensive weapons. I would just go to, to uh, Secretary Newland. Why do you think that is the case? I mean, why would we be so feckless, feckless, in agreeing to something back in 1994 and yet be unwilling to give them the kind of defensive weaponry that they can utilize, not more than they can utilize? Why would we not be doing that? What would be your impression of our inability to make that happen? Well, Chairman, as um, Undersecretary McCann has said, we have provided some significant defensive systems, including the counterfire mortar radars, which have saved lives in Ukraine. We have not uh, answered the entire shopping list from the Ukrainians. There are a lot of factors uh, that go into that. And we are continuing to look at the situation on the ground and the needs and the implementation of Minsk as we evaluate this going forward. My understanding that we've also dropped back from training the Ukrainian National Guard uh, and put that on hold. Can you just briefly tell me why that's the case, Secretary McKeon? Uh Senator Corker, as you know, we had notified uh, to your committee, I believe several months ago, about a, a program of training for the National Guard. We have not had a decision, never had a decision on the final timing and scope of it. We had talked about doing it this month, but it's it's still under consideration as to when we would do that training. Pretty evident that we're really not going to do much. Pretty evident I, that the strong statements that we've made are statements. And I'll close. I know my time is up. But uh, I'll just say to Mr. Tului, thank you for your presentation. I do hope that we are committed to providing and our partners the financial assistance that's going to be necessary to keep Ukraine afloat. I think the greatest victory were for Putin other than certainly making us look really weak to the world right now, uh, and certainly not following through on our commitments, 
I think his greatest victory uh, would be for Ukraine to fall and us not, uh, and him not to have to break it, to own it, or own it by breaking it, but break it by economic uh, conditions there on the ground. And I hope that we are committed. I know others may ask you questions about how much we are committed to provide them, but thank you all for your testimony. And I realize each of you are messengers and not making these decisions, uh, Secretary Menendez. Well, thanks for the promotion, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let, let me, uh, let me uh, say I, I, you know, I'm not quite sure why we cannot move ahead. Former National Security uh, Advisor Dr. Brzezinski, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, both testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee that the U.S. should provide defensive weapons to Ukraine. When asked about providing such weapons to Ukraine, Ash Carter said during his confirmation hearing, I very much am inclined in that direction because I think we need to support the Ukrainians in defending themselves. U.S. Army Europe Commander Lieutenant General Ben Hodges recently stated his support for providing weapons to Ukraine in order to provide the necessary muscle for a diplomatic solution. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has suggested the same. So I have a question. Is Dr. Brzezinski, Secretary Albright, Secretary Carter, General Hodges, General Dempsey, and a unanimous Congress all wrong? I take it that's a question to me, Ranking Member Well, Menendez. either you, Madam Secretary, or the Secretary of the Defense Department, or whoever wants to take it. But, I mean, you have an overwhelming view from a wide spectrum uh, and I just, I don't, I don't get it. So maybe you can elucidate, are they all wrong? And if so, why are, are they wrong? I think as the interagency discussion on this subject has taught us, it is, there are factors on, on both sides and we are continuing to evaluate, I think, from where we sit at the State Department, if we can see these Minsk agreements implemented, if we can see peace in eastern Ukraine, that offers the best hope for the Ukrainian people. But we will continue to well, evaluate me, the situation as we go let's forward. Let's stop there. Minsk 1, nothing, a disaster. Minsk 2 only went ahead and largely incorporated more territory that the rebels had taken since Minsk 1 and made the boundary lines to assure for Ukraine, between Ukraine and Russia, less capable of actually being pursued because it's all dependent upon some votes on decentralization of the government. There have been, uh, Admiral Pandolfi, about 1,000 violations of the ceasefire. Is that a fair estimate? I can't give you a precise figure, but there have been a number. Okay, that's, that is a, a commonly referred to number, 1,000 violations of the ceasefire. Uh, and so we keep working on this aspirational basis while Russia works effectively to take more and more Ukrainian land. And there isn't enough money in the world to be able to help the Ukrainians sustain themselves if they continue to bleed because of the conflict that Russia has created and still stokes uh, in eastern Ukraine. So I don't get it. Unless you change the calculus for Putin, this is going to continue. He will get his land bridge to Crimea, and so much for our statements about we are not willing to forgive the fact that Crimea is gone. Uh, I don't get it. So I, I don't know how much the interagency process is going to continue to wait. I guess when all of this is solidified, 
then it will be too late. Let me ask you, the, uh, according to the law, the administration is supposed to report on its plan for increasing military assistance to the government of Ukraine. It was supposed to have done that by February the 15th. It has not. What day can we expect this report to be submitted? Senator Menendez, we very much regret that these reports are not yet ready. We are continuing to work on some of the programmatic issues that we want to reflect in these reports, uh, including those that flow from our 2015 budget. And speaking for us, we've only just had our pass back. So we are hoping to have them up to you in coming weeks, if not in coming days. Uh, Secretary McKim, welcome back to the committee. You did a lot of distinguished work here while you were here. Uh, on December 10th, you testified before the Armed Services Subcommittee that the U.S. was considering a variety of military responses to Russia's violation of the INF Treaty. Among the responses you outlined was the placement of U.S. ground-launched cruise missiles in Europe, which I assume would have nuclear capability. Can you further elaborate on the military responses the administration is considering to Russia's INF violation and how NATO allies have reacted to the suggestion of the introduction of U.S. GLCMs? Senator Menendez, uh, on the last issue, when I talked about that in the hearing, it was uh, uh, in the hypothetical sense, introducing a glickum into Europe would not be in compliance with the treaty. So we would have in the first instance to withdraw from the treaty or declare it null and void based on Russia's actions. I had put that out there as just something we obviously could do if we chose to come out of the treaty. What we are looking at in terms of options, uh, countermeasures, some of which are compliant with the treaty, some of which would not be, I can describe a range of things in, in different buckets. One would be uh, defenses of uh, NATO sites or US sites in Europe. Second would be uh, counterforce capabilities to, pre to prevent attacks. And third would be uh, countervailing strike uh, capabilities to go after ru other Russian targets. Uh, so we're looking at a range of things. We're still, in the first instance, trying to persuade Russia uh, to come back into compliance with the treaty and remember why they signed it in the first instance. Uh, but that if, if that does not succeed, our objective is to ensure they have no significant military advantage from their violation of the treaty. And so far, we have not succeeded at getting them back into compliance with the that's, treaty. That's correct. Now, let me ask you, uh, uh, Secretary Tului, um, uh, at the height of the Maidan protests in December of 2013, Russia extended a $3 billion bond in an attempt to keep President Yanukovych in power. He fled the country with unknown millions, but Ukraine and its citizens retained the debt. Given the exorbitant terms of the bond, Russia can demand immediate repayment in full, and if Ukraine refuses to pay, it would trigger default on all Ukrainian <coughs> debt. In my estimation, that is clearly an economic weapon. Now there's precedent for shielding countries from this type of coercion. In 2003, the US and the EU, among others, adopted in their legal systems UN Security Council Resolution 1483 which made Iraqi oil and gas assets immune to seizure by private creditors. The UK Parliament could similarly enact legislation to deny enforcement of the bond since it's governed under English law. If Russia refuses to reschedule payments on the bond or reclassify it as a government-to-government -government debt under the auspices of the Paris Club, has the administration engaged with the British government 
on the possibility of denying enforcement of the bond under British law. Ranking Member Menendez, thank you for that question. Um, uh, a few, I think that you touch on a few points, uh, so let me, let me touch on a few uh, aspects that are relevant. First of all, Russia um, has not uh, asked for, has not demanded the so-called acceleration of this payment. Uh, in addition, the Ukrainian government, in the context of its IMF program, has indicated that it intends to discuss with creditors, which would include Russia, the rescheduling of obligations falling due, uh, primarily within the scope of the IMF program. That would include this Russian $3 billion. And those discussions are only beginning with what we anticipate will be the approval of the IMF program tomorrow. Second, let me also mention that uh, Treasury, uh, specifically uh, our FinCEN, is cooperating with the Ukrainian authorities on the other issue that you mentioned, which is the recovery of assets uh, that went missing with the departure of the, the, form, the previous regime. So we're certainly willing to look at the issue that, that you mentioned should that eventuality arise, but right now, um, as I said, Russia has not accelerated the, this, this uh, claim, and also this claim is going to be subject to the discussions between the Ukrainian government and its creditors. Well, one final point. I hope we don't wait until Russia pulls such a trigger. I hope they don't. But then, if it's all too late and the process of doing what is necessary to create the appropriate protection under international law as it relates to the UN Security Council resolutions may be too late. So it seems to me there is no harm in having a discussion to be poised for that possibility so that we're not on the back end of trying to play a catch-up ball. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for this hearing today, and thank you to the witnesses for testifying today. I'm going to start with uh, Secretary Newland and just talk briefly about some of the comments that were made last week at a hearing the committee held, uh, including uh, witnesses uh, Gary Kasparov as well as uh, President Shakasvili. When I asked uh, the President about his role uh, with Ukraine and uh, talked about the promises that he believes have been made by the United States to Ukraine and whether or not we had met those promises, I think the answer was clearly he did not feel that we had lived up to all that we had promised and the bargain that the United States had entered into, or the, excuse me, the agreement to the benefits of the bargain they had not yet received uh, in terms of uh, promises of our commitment to them. Uh, in your testimony, you stated uh, that the United States must keep faith with Ukraine. How do you mesh his belief through his representation of Ukraine and your statement that we have kept faith with the people of Ukraine? Well, I can't speak to how uh, former Georgian President Saakashvili comes to his conclusion, but I would simply say that I think this Congress has been enormously generous and responsive to the administration's request, including uh, going above and beyond, in some cases, uh, the requests that we've made, including in the category of the European Reassurance Initiative, where we have more money for Ukraine than we asked for. 
what we have been trying to do both through the uh, loan guarantee program and through the bilateral assistance that I outlined in some detail is to try to support the implementation of these very, very tough reforms that the Ukrainians are making, and we will continue to do that. We've also fielded a huge number of technical advisors into the ministries to help them both with the drafting of legislation and with the implementation. Uh, and on the security assistance side, uh, the numbers are significant as, as uh, compared to previous support for Ukraine, but as uh, Under Secretary McKeon said, we want to see it move faster. And thank you, and I believe this probably question is more appropriate to Mr. McKeon. Um, the, you mentioned it in your comments to the chairman, uh, Associated Press articles, German ambassador, President Obama agreed not to send arms to Ukraine. Uh, what is the current, what is the administration's current posture on lethal assistance to Ukraine? Senator, we're still reviewing it. It's still an option. And when do you believe this review will be completed? I hope soon, but I can't put a timetable on it. And soon, is that days, weeks, months? I hesitate to predict, sir. And what has your conversation been with Ukraine uh, leadership uh, regarding this assistance? There are conversations go on all the time, both in the, in the field with Ambassador Pyatt, but also my former boss, the Vice President, uh, has Por President Poroshenko and the Prime Minister on a speed dial. He talks to them at least once a week, it seems. Um, I, don't, I don't know the latest of what he has said to them on this issue. I think in general, they're getting the same information that I'm giving you, that it's under consideration. In your conversations, I mean, so they would say the same thing uh, to you as well, that they have not heard, they don't know the reports, they don't know when this assistance would That's be correct, and they've, they've made their requests and interests known. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, when we are talking about the ceasefire and uh, the Russian-backed offensive, um, do you think, in, in your intelligence, your reports that you have seen, uh, how much time do we have before Putin renews his... Uh, his push into Ukraine. Mr. McKeon. Sir, um, getting inside President Putin's head and predicting his next move is an ongoing challenge uh, for the intelligence community as well as the policy community. I can tell you uh, some reporting today that I can give you on an unclassified basis, some of which Assistant Secretary Newland gave uh, briefly in her testimony. Uh, the Russians continue to operate in eastern Ukraine where they're providing command and control support, operating air defense systems, and fighting alongside the separatists. As she said, they're moving military equipment, and there are still uh, battalion tactical groups across the border of some significant number. Uh, but w when they may make another move, I don't think anybody can say. In terms of sanctions, you mentioned a little bit of sanctions, uh, Secretary Newland. Uh, what are, what, what are we doing right now in terms of the European Union governments, such, such as Hungary, Greece, Cyprus, uh, those nations who have been opposed to additional sanctions on Russia? What have we been doing to uh, talk to them about uh, the steps needed and necessary for additional sanctions? Well, despite some publicly stated concerns, those countries that you mentioned have uh, supported sanctions in the Council when the leaders come together. We continue to uh, talk to them bilaterally. 
uh, about these issues. Um, I will make a, another trip out to some of those countries in, in the com coming days and weeks. But we are also working with the Commission itself to continue to design sanctions that if we need to use them, if they need to be applied either in deterrent or actual, uh, have more of an effect on Russia than they do on the European economy or our own economy. So that's part of the conversation that we have. In that consideration to design uh, of sanctions, does the administration support and what have the conversations been expelling Russia from the SWIFT financial system? Uh, I, I think it would be better not to, to get into the details of potential actions that, uh, that we could take. Um, the framework that we evaluate all potential actions is basically the impact that, that they would have on Russia and the Russian economy against the spillover or blowback that would occur both to the United States and our partners in Europe. So without commenting on specific actions, that would be the prism through which we'd be evaluating something like that. But you have discussed the SWIFT financial system action with the European counterparts? We've discussed a whole range of, of, of options for uh, further sanctions. Mr. McKeon, McKeon, last week we also talked about uh, the length of time it would take for NATO to train a capable Ukrainian military that can successfully defend its territory. What, what time length uh, uh, do you think it would take? What's the length of time you think it would take to train Ukrainian military forces? Well, Senator, it depends on the type of training, the scope of training, how many units we were talking about. Uh, the training that uh, the chairman asked me about that was on the books is, uh, is being looked at for the National Guard forces was going to be over the course of six months, and I think it was uh, five or six companies or battalions. But Frank, do you know the details on that? Four. Four. So if we were to train all of their military, you're talking over 100,000 people, uh, that would take much, a much longer period of time, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Secretary Shaheen. I'm having trouble We're with all, all these secretaries. Y'all are all, and y'all could all serve extremely well in those positions. I apologize for the demotion. Yeah, there we go. Well, thank you, uh, Senator Corker. I appreciate that. Um, and thank you to all of our witnesses for being here today. Um, I want to begin by just um, sharing the frustration that we've heard from other members of this committee about um, the slowness with which we are providing assistance to Ukraine. Um, the, the, on the weapons side, um, not just about the decision, which seems to be taking a very long time on providing assistance, but the other forms of assistance that would be helpful to the Ukrainian military that's in the field. Um, and I had an opportunity to meet last week with some representatives from Ukraine, a member of parliament and some others. And one of the things they talked about was, and I got into a back and forth with them about the reservations that have been expressed by this administration and by Chancellor Merkel and other Europeans about providing weapons and the extent to which that might escalate the conflict. And they said a couple of things that really resonated with me. One was that they weren't sure that the conflict could be escalated um, too much worse than they expect it to be, in fact, under the current circumstances, and that there was a, a real symbolic um, impact should we provide defensive weapons that would have a real morale boost 
on both the military and on the people of Ukraine. So in our analysis of the pros and cons of providing defensive assistance, do we disagree with that assessment that there would be a real symbolic impact to providing that help? I guess this is directed at either you, Secretary Newland, or um, Brian McKeon. Senator, uh, all of our assistance to the Ukrainians is providing uh, not just symbolic, but real assistance uh, to support, th support their government across the board, both economic and security assistance. So I'm not going to deny that uh, any assistance we provide would be uh, of importance to the Ukrainians. Um, what I can say, what I would say uh, though about what we have already provided and what we've committed is it's meeting real Ukrainian military needs. The U armed forces were somewhat stripped bare by the corruption of the last regime. And so I, while I realize a lot of it seems rather basic in terms uh, no, of- No, I appreciate that. Uh, and it, yeah. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. I, I'm expressing my frustration as others have with the timeliness of providing that assistance as well as a decision about whether we're gonna in fact provide defensive weapons. And, and I guess I would ask this of you, Secretary Newland, do we think there's a point at, whence, at which Chancellor Merkel um, would feel like the second Minsk agreement has failed and um, that an effort to find a peaceful resolution to the conflict has failed and therefore we may need to think about other steps. Senator, we are in intense conversation with our allies about a common standard for measuring implementation with Minsk and ensuring that the OSCE gives us all, whether it's Chancellor Merkel, President Obama, or anybody else, a clear picture of where the ceasefire is holding, where it isn't, where OSCE is at, has access, where it doesn't, where weapons are being pulled back, so that we can measure. We've talked with our European allies, including Germany, about two things, not only seeing those things implemented, but also about the danger of any future land grab, which is why I shouted out this village of Shirokina, which is on the, on the road to Mariupol. But there's now this third concern that I also mentioned in my opening, which is the continued resupply over the border, which is not uh, compatible with either the spirit or the letter of Minsk. So we need to watch all of those things together. As I said, sanctions are going to have to increase, pressure is going to have to increase if Minsk is not implemented. Well, as I know, you, you all know, there was a European subcommittee hearing last week on Ukraine. And one of the concerns that was expressed was uh, about the, the economic assistance because if the economy of Ukraine fails, um, then a resolution of the conflict probably is moot. But one concern that we discussed was the ability of the Ukrainian people to um, continue to support the reforms that are being enacted. And I wonder if you could speak to that, um, Secretary Newland. Well, thank you, Senator. This is a real concern for Ukraine's leaders, whether they are in the executive or they are in the Rada. As I outlined in my opening, the kinds of intensive changes to the structure of the economy <coughs> 
are going to have impacts uh, in people's pocketbooks and in people's lives, including the raising of the pension age, increased energy prices. So this is why we're working so hard with the IMF and our international partners that as Ukraine takes these tough measures, that the support comes in quickly so that the economy can stabilize, so investment can come back, so that the people can see a light at the end of the tunnel. We have to get Ukraine growing again. Um, thank you. One of the other things that was mentioned at last week's hearing, and I guess this question is probably for you, Admiral Pandolfi, and that is the, the concern that Putin might try to test the Article 5 commitment of NATO countries. And can you talk about what steps we are taking to try and um, deter Putin from thinking that he want, should test that? Well, yes, ma'am. Uh, first of all, our commitment to Article 5 is ironclad, as is all the allies, and that needs to be understood. And we believe that is understood. Uh, to emphasize that, uh, NATO has uh, has uh, enacted some reassurance measures, which include increasing air, ground, and sea forces in the eastern parts of, uh, of Europe. Uh, they're also adapting their force structure with uh, a very high readiness joint task force and standing up what's called NATO force integration units to facilitate the flow of reinforcements should that be needed into eastern Europe. These all come out of the Wales Conference, so it's a head of state level commitment, uh, and NATO is moving forward with that. And uh, on the United States side, the ERI uh, monies that were uh, authorized by the Congress are most appreciated and are very much helping in that as well. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yes, Senator Perdue, please. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I just want to echo the frustration in, uh, that you're hearing this morning. I, uh, um, because of the intransigence of this administration, it seems to me that you know, all of a sudden we're in an era where our allies don't trust us and our enemies don't fear us. You know, as it was mentioned earlier, the Ukraine uh, unilaterally gave up over a thousand uh, nuclear weapons uh, on the assurance that, um, uh, you know, their national security would be protected. NATO and the U.S. was behind that. Last September, the president, with President Poroshenko by his side, President Obama promised to help Ukraine build up an effective security force to defend themselves from aggression. And yet here we are today talking about uh, more delays in terms of getting that support. Kurt Volker, a former U.S. ambassador to NATO, has written with a new, that a new cease, this new ceasefire amounts to an instant, and I quote, institutionalization of a frozen conflict inside Ukraine. Along the lines of Abkhazia in South Ossetia in Georgia and Transnistria in Moldova. This is exactly what the Kremlin wants, end quote. Admiral, I, I've just got a couple of questions. Do you think that Putin's objective is to create a frozen conflict like the ones in Georgia and Moldova? And if so, what would be our response to that? Senator, I think his objective is to keep Ukraine destabilized so, so that doesn't uh, effectively join the West. Um, he is threatened by progressive democracies on his borders, in my opinion, uh, and he is uh, trying everything he can to prevent, uh, prevent that from happening. Uh, in response, as uh, Secretary Luland and Secretary McKeon have pointed out, it, we have implemented a wide array of initiatives uh, focused on generating pressure, economic, diplomatic, and military, to try to um, force the Russians to stop this behavior and respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Thank you. And from a strategic perspective, uh, in recent months, Russia's kidnapped an Estonian intelligence officer on Estonian soil. 
warned Latvia of unfortunate consequences for its alleged mistreatment of ethnic Russians, forced Sweden to reroute a civilian airliner recently to prevent a collision with a Russian military jet, and flown strategic bombers over the English Channel, actually, and sent unannounced, uh, unannounced formations of military aircraft into European airspace. I'd like to follow up on Senator Shaheen's question about Article 5, but do you believe Putin's strategic objective is to determine, uh, to undermine the credibility of NATO's guarantee to secure all of its member states? I do. I think uh, President Putin would like very much to undermine uh, the NATO alliance, and uh, we are working very hard to communicate to him the solidarity of that alliance and taking steps to emphasize and illustrate that solidarity. Can you talk specifically uh, about what's being done by NATO in uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania with, in regard to that? Well, as mentioned a moment ago, the, um, the reassurance measures being taken by NATO do include, and the United States is part of this, obviously, uh, rotating forces through the Baltic states, uh, engaging those states in terms of uh, uh, exercises and training and assistance, uh, as well as facilitating uh, additional aircraft being stationed in those countries. Uh, NATO AWACS are flying over Eastern Europe to, to a greater extent. Ships are in the Baltic and the Black Seas to a greater extent. All of this holistically is designed to, to bolster and underline the uh, Article 5 commitments. Thank you. And one last question, uh, Secretary Tului. Um, we've said that, and all three, all four of you have said in different ways that uh, the solution here is diplomatic, economic, and military. Um, my question is on the sanctions. Um, you know, that they don't have a consumer, Russia doesn't have a consumer economy, basically. They've got an energy economy. Um, their banking uh, sector uh, can be hit, and also their military arms uh, manufacturing sector. Can you speak uh, in a non-classified way about what needs to be done uh, from the sanctions perspective that can actually get his attention at this point? Senator Purdue, thank you for that question. Um, the, the sectors that you mentioned actually have been targeted through the sanctions. Um, both the defense sector and the financial sector have been subject not only to what we call sectoral sanctions, which restricts the ability of companies in that sector to borrow money, to tap the capital markets which needed for them to develop their businesses, but also in particular in the defense sector, there have been individual companies listed uh, and subject to asset freezes. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Those sectors are very important. They are part of the reason why uh, the sanctions have had the effect that they've had on the Russian economy, uh, with the currency depreciating by more than 40%, the economy expected to contract this year, inflation rising to over 17%. So, um, so those sectors are very important. They've been part of our tailored sanctions program, uh, and these are the effects that we've seen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the panel for being here today. Uh, I just uh, note to the chairman and ranking member, uh, Senator McCain was in Connecticut yesterday, uh, and we held a town hall meeting with Connecticut's Ukrainian-American population. We had an overflow crowd uh, at the Ukrainian National Home in Hartford, probably around 300, 400 uh, people. Um, and they raised some of the similar concerns that were raised here today, um, but they also expressed um, uh, real uh, and heartfelt appreciation uh, for the fact that if it were not for uh, 
the leadership of the United States uh, rallying the international community to the economic assistance that is allowed for the uh, Ukrainian government to still stand if it wasn't for our leadership on rallying the international community uh, towards a policy of sanctions, um, this story would have played out in a very different way. This is a dire situation in eastern Ukraine today, um, but I think many of the people that I represent, though they want us to go further, uh, understand what we've done thus far and its importance uh, to uh, the ability of Ukraine to continue to defend itself to the degree that it can. Um, I have one specific question. Um, and then I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the, the concerns that uh, many of us have about a policy of uh, providing defensive arms, though I support it. Um, first is uh, to this question of what the Budapest Memorandum obligates the United States to do. Um, already today, um, I've heard some of my colleagues talk about the Budapest Memorandum as uh, obligating the United States uh, to defend uh, or obligating NATO to defend uh, Ukraine from a territorial attack. Um, I think it's important for us to know exactly what we are obligated to do when we sign these international agreements, notwithstanding our unanimity and our belief that we think we should provide defensive weapons to the Ukrainians. So maybe I'll pose this question to uh, you, Secretary Newland. It, it, it's my understanding the Budapest Memorandum um, obligates each country individually to respect the uh, territorial integrity of Ukraine, but significantly, um, is not a mutual defense treaty, does not obligate any of those countries to then defend Ukraine. Um, it, is it is not comparable to Article 5. Um, I, I just think it's important for us to understand if that's actually the case. First of all, Senator, as a native Connecticut girl, I'm glad to see the Connecticut Ukrainian-Americans are active in support of Ukraine. Um, I was uh, part of the negotiating team that worked on the Budapest Memorandum, so I know it well. You are accurate. It was a political agreement among the four signatories, and notably the United States, the UK, the Russian Federation, and Ukraine, to respect the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine, not to attack her, but it was a political agreement. It did not have a legally binding treaty force or legally binding uh, national defense obligations. That said, it is Russia that has violated the spirit and the letter of that agreement. Uh, agreed. Um, uh, Mr. McKeon, I, I want to just talk a little bit about um, how circumstances on the ground would play out in the event that we decided to um, give substantial defensive weapons to the Ukrainians. Um, the supposition is that Putin is not paying a big enough price uh, simply with economic sanctions and that the price that he would pay, perhaps in greater numbers of lives lost, that he wouldn't be able to cloak in secrecy due to increased U.S. assistance would change his calculus. Um, I think that's a chance worth taking. It's why I've you know, joined with my colleagues in supporting providing defensive weapons. But I understand that it's a chance and that there is also a significant um, uh, chance that that is not how things will go, that he will just continue his march straight through the lines that we have fortified. Um, I don't know if you're to this point in terms of your, um, your, your, your thinking or the proposals that you've been making to uh, the president, to the secretary, um, but what would we do in the event that we provided a, a certain level of defensive weaponry 
Putin amassed additional forces, moved straight through the lines that we have then supplied. Um, would we be in the position of then having to uh, send additional supplies, additional uh, weapons? How, how does this play out in the case that it doesn't go the way that we hope it goes, uh, whereby Putin pays a bigger price than he's paying today, to today, stops his aggression, or comes to the, to the table? What happens if that doesn't work? Uh, Senator Murphy, without getting into all the specifics of the internal debate in the administration, in some respects, you've put your finger on the conundrum. Uh, we're constantly, from the beginning of this crisis, we have looked at ways to increase the costs on President Putin, to deter further aggression, and to change his calculus. And so that's certainly part of the thinking that goes into weighing whether uh, additional weapons, including lethal defensive, would, do, would achieve that. And then on the opposite side, what you said about does this raise the ante, I, I don't want to say does this provoke him because he's certainly been, he doesn't need any provoking. Um, and then, then what would Ukraine feel uh, that the United States owes them in terms of additional assistance? So it's trying to see down the field to the second, third, and fourth move uh, on this chessboard uh, that's part of the conversation. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't buy this argument that you know us supplying the Ukrainians with defensive weapons is going to provoke uh, Putin. He's got a plan here that he's going to carry out uh, regardless. We're already in for a pretty significant commitment uh, as, as it is. I just want to make sure, and I think you're suggesting that you're having these conversations, that we're playing this out not just to step one, but to step two and three and four. I think very often we supply you with advice that doesn't necessarily contemplate the follow-on actions of our initial commitment. Um, very final question. I'll try to make it quick. Back to you, Secretary. Secretary Newland, um, just speak to us about the greater challenge here. We're seeing the tip of the iceberg when it comes to uh, the tools that Russia is using. Um, and frankly, you uh, and our government writ large is vastly under-resourced to try to prevent the next Ukraine uh, from occurring. And as I've been uh, saying a number of times in a number of different forums, at the same time that we're debating the assistance that we should be giving to Ukraine, uh, we really need to be having a discussion about how we resource state uh, and defense to, 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 to help all these other countries that we're talking about, whether it be the Baltics, the Balkans, uh, Moldova, Georgia, to try to make sure that this is the last crisis of this proportion that we face in the region. Thank you, Senator, and thank you for your attention to some of the under-resourced parts of Europe, in particular the Balkans and, uh, and Central Europe. Uh, well, as you said, in addition to the security challenges, and not only the security challenges in, uh, in Ukraine, in the other uh, key periphery states like Moldova and Georgia, but also to the alliance itself, as uh, Under Secretary McKean and Admiral Pandolf have spoken to, there are all kinds of asymmetric challenges posed by this conflict, whether you're talking about the uh, use of energy as a weapon, which requires us to work much more intensively with the EU and with our European allies and partners on energy diversification, the work that we've been doing on reverse flow gas to Ukraine, uh, more LNG terminals in the Baltics, uh, now working at the energy dependence of some of our allies in southern Europe. We'd like to be able to do more to help Bulgaria, Hungary, and, other, and Croatia and other countries like that, uh, although we are doing a lot together with the EU. Things like use of corruption as a, as a tool of malign influence to under, undermine sovereignty, whether you're talking about 
uh, directly paying political candidates or whether you're talking about just ensuring that there's enough dirty money in the system to undercut democratic institutions or to make uh, individual political actors vulnerable to outside pressure. So we're working with countries to expose that and also to uh, close the space for corruption in their system, particularly focused on Central Europe and the Balkans. Uh, the propaganda, which is not simply what you see in terms of news, but it's also um, under the table efforts to support uh, what look like legitimate NGOs but are actually um, agents of influence in countries that uh, change the debate on things that we're working on, whether it's about TTIP or whether it's about Ukraine or other things. So there's a lot uh, to focus on, particularly uh, in the Balkans where uh, they are not, most of them cemented into the alliance and many of them not cemented into the EU, so they're more at risk, but also in allied territory. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Before turning to Senator uh, Johnson, I do want to say that uh, countries watching the last exchange, uh, Madam Secretary, from a person who helped write the Budapest Agreement, um, apparently it was a superficial agreement, only a political agreement. Um, I would say that uh, countries watching that last exchange would be pretty reticent to come to any agreement with the United States for sure, uh, the UK and Russia uh, regarding uh, nuclear arms. And my guess is uh, that last exchange would be a pretty major setback to anyone who thought we were ever serious about uh, an agreement relative to nuclear proliferation. But uh, with that, I'll turn over to Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, those that answer that question certainly doesn't reassure the allies, which is, I think, one of the phrases I heard in the testimony. Um, Senator Gardner and Senator Sheen mentioned the hearing we had uh, last week in our European subcommittee. Uh, I called that hearing to, to try and lay out and describe the reality, to, to really to tell the story of what Russia has become under Vladimir Putin. I would refer people to my written opening remarks where we laid out a timeline, which was pretty revealing, 29 political assassinations, and of course, uh, uh, the day after we called the hearing, uh, we, we saw the assassination of Boris Nepsov. Um, pretty stark. D during that hearing, uh, Gary Kasparov, who's been a leading voice of the opposition, because uh, I want to talk about the strategy here. Of, of, we've talked about the objectives of Vladimir Putin. I want to talk about the strategy. He said that Putin rebuilt a police state in Russia in full view of the outside world, and now he is confident enough of his power to attempt to export that police state abroad to Georgia, to Ukraine, to Moldova. Where next? And, George and former Georgia President Shakasvili told uh, our committee, our subcommittee, only the swift and immediate action of the U.S. government to train and equip the Ukrainians can stop Putin's strategy to deconstruct the transatlantic architecture to deconstruct the post-Cold War order. Uh, Secretary Newland, do, do you agree that that is, by and large, what Vladimir Putin's trying to do? And if you don't agree, what is his strategy? What is his overall motivation? What's his overall goal? Well, I certainly agree with the way Admiral Pandolf characterized uh, his motives earlier in this hearing. Um, he's looking to keep countries in the former Soviet space under his political and economic control. He's looking to uh, roll back the gains of a Europe whole, free, and at peace. 
which is why all of the things that we're talking about here, whether it is uh, allied reassurance and, and making sure that where we do have treaty, treaty commitments, which is to our NATO allies, that every millimeter of space is defended, but also to help uh, strengthen and provide more resilience, political security and economic to all the countries in the periphery. Earlier in Vladimir Putin's aggression against uh, Ukraine, I, I heard a number of administration officials saying that we were trying to offer an off-ramp to Vladimir Putin. Uh, does anybody on the panel here believe that uh, Vladimir Putin's looking for an off-ramp? You know, my evaluation, he's simply looking for on-ramps, strategically pausing and looking for that next on-ramp. On anybody want to dispute that? Okay, I didn't think. I don't know that I'd call it an off-ramp, Senator. I think there was a point earlier in the crisis where he arguably was. I think, as Admiral Pandolf said, he's trying to keep Ukraine out of the West and keep it in a destabilized situation. Uh, whether he seeks to go further in Ukraine, I can't say, uh, but I don't, so. Uh, certainly, from my standpoint, he's really not looking for off-ramps. He's looking for opportunities. Uh, Dr. Stephen Blank uh, testified, and uh, I want to see if this is pretty much the administration's evaluation of, of really what uh, Russia is doing. According to the IH, IHS consultancy firm, Ukrainian authorities and the Potomac Institute, there are currently 14,400 Russian troops on Ukrainian territory, backing up the 29,300 illegally armed formations of separatists in eastern Ukraine. These units are well equipped with the latest main battle tanks, armored personnel carriers and infantry fighting vehicles, plus hundreds of pieces of tube and rocket artillery. There are also 29,400 Russian troops in Crimea and 55,800 massed along the border with eastern Ukraine. Is that pretty much this administration's assessment of really what you know, Russian troop strength is in, in Crimea and in Ukraine? Whoever's most qualified. Senator Johnson, uh, without going into the specifics of the intelligence, uh, the numbers uh, on the number of Russians in U eastern Ukraine, uh, I can't comment on. The, it changes from week to week. It's somewhat fluid. Suffice it to say there are many Russian soldiers in eastern Ukraine, and there's no doubt they have transferred hundreds of pieces of equipment. So you're certainly uh, not saying this assessment is inaccurate. There's well, no possibly this is accurate. I, I can't say that uh, the number is exactly right in terms of 14,000 or... Uh, in terms of the numbers on the border, as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the latest information we have on the border, there are 11 Russian tactical, uh, battalion tactical groups uh, on the Rostov area uh, off of eastern Ukraine at uh, Senator Shaheen was talking about meeting with uh, some of the European or U Ukrainian parliamentarians, and I did the same thing, and they, they were certainly concerned about potential swing, spring offensive by Russia. And uh, Secretary Newland, you, you talked about they are you know, massing additional, moving additional heavy, heavy equipment into uh, Russia. I, isn't that a, a big concern? Senator, that's exactly why we are seeking uh, the greatest degree of fidelity on whether this Minsk agreement is being implemented and strengthening the OSCE so it can give us an accurate picture. But it's also why we are publicly here calling out some of the 
specific concerns we have, whether it's about the rearming that we've seen in the last couple of days, whether it's about the continued firing in the strategically important villages of Shirokana, et cetera. So again, if Minsk is implemented before spring and things pull back, then that will allow space for politics to begin in eastern Ukraine. But if not, we have to be prepared to have um, more sanctions pressure on Russia, and that's what we're and preparing. That's, that's a big if. I would argue sanctions haven't worked particularly well. You know, what? one of my meetings with some of the European, or European uh, allies, uh, the comment was made that as Russia becomes weaker economically, they become more dangerous. And I, I kind of agree with that assessment, which is, again, why I believe we have to provide a military response, lethal defensive weaponry. Let, let me just close with a quote by by Georgian President Shakasvili, or certainly his, his assessment, there's a couple of quotes in here, about changing Putin's calculus, as Senator Menendez mentioned. You know, he, he was there on the front lines when Russia invaded Georgia, and in a, in a resolute action on the part of, of the Bush administration, sending in supplies, not without Russia really knowing what was on those, those cargo airplanes, that did, certainly one of the factors in causing Russia to stop further expansion, aggression into, into Georgia. So Shaksvili basically said that deployments from Russia's far east are proof that the Kremlin is sensitive to the rising, quote, cost for Putin's invasion of eastern Ukraine because Russians have, quote, a very thin layer of tolerance for human casualties. So again, that was Shaksvili's assessment that if we would show some strength, some resolve, in other words, respond to President Poroshenko's plea that, yes, they, they will they will provide the courage, they will prov provide the boots on the ground to fight Vladimir Putin's aggression, but they can't do it with blankets. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Card. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for, for holding this uh, very important hearing, and I thank all of our, our witnesses. Uh, there's no question there's strong consensus on this committee, I think, in the United States Senate, uh, that the United States needs to do more to help the Ukraines defend themselves. So I, I just want to make that clear from the beginning. Uh, the, the Ukrainians need defensive uh, support so they can defend themselves as far as weapons are concerned. And uh, this committee has spoken, and many of us have, have voiced this, and the, the hearing, I think, has been pretty clear about our position in that regard. It's also clear that we need to take stronger action against Russia. The tragic assassination of, of Boris Nemtov uh, really points out just how uh, extreme the Putin regime has gotten. I think the, the, what we could do, Madam Secretary, and I would just urge you to uh, look at, uh, Ms. Mr. Nemtov uh, exposed individuals of gross violation of Russian rights. It would be appropriate for us to review as to whether we shouldn't be imposing the Manitsky-type sanctions against those individuals that he worked on uh, within Russia. And let us not forget uh, Nadia Savchenko, uh, who is unlawfully imprisoned in Russia today, who was taken from Ukraine by Russia. And we, this Senate has spoken by a resolution it passed in that regard. So uh, there is just continued efforts, and the Russia's violations of its agreements, including the Minsk II ceasefire. Uh, I'm pleased to see you're looking at additional sanctions. Understand that it's going to take U.S. leadership. We can, if we wait for Europe to act, it's, it, it's not going to be effective. We have to be 
out there uh, and with our European partners, but it's going to require the, the U.S. leadership. I want to change gears for one moment, if I might. I think we've had a lot of questioning on the defensive issues. I want to get to the economic front for one moment, because you know my assessment from visiting Kyiv was that what, what, what happened in the protests there were as much about basic rights and economic rights as it was about political issues. So as we look to Ukraine being able to defend its borders and being able to control its territory, we also at the same time have to make sure that they have an effective government with the institutions that protect the rights of all of its citizens to express their views and to be treated fairly, free from corruption, uh, as well as economic opportunities that that country should be able to provide for its citizens. So I know the IMF uh, originally made a commitment in, in 2014 uh, uh, I think it was $17 billion, $4.5 billion was released. They now have a new commitment that they entered into in February this year that looks like takes us up to maybe $22 billion. I know the United States has provided some direct assistance. But can you tell us how confident you are that the Ukrainian government is moving towards the development of the institutions critical for a democracy to flourish and how successful we are on their path for economic reforms. Senator Cardin, thank you very much for that question. Um, I couldn't agree more that what we saw in the Maidan and what we've seen since uh, reflects the desire of, of the uh, Ukrainian people for a better life, including a better economic life. And I think that one reason that we have been successful in mobilizing such large international financial assistance for Ukraine is because the actions that the Ukrainian government has taken reflect a decisive break from the past. Um, their willingness to address subsidies and inefficiencies and corruption uh, in their government spending and their state-owned enterprises, uh, establishing an anti-corruption bureau, um, and uh, addressing issues related to insider influence within financial institutions. All of these are actions that the Ukrainian government has put forward, not that the international financial institutions have imposed on uh, Ukraine. And when Secretary Liu, our undersecretary Nathan Sheets, myself, have visited Ukraine in the last couple of months, the departure uh, from the past practices of Ukrainian governments couldn't be more evident. So our responsibility is to ensure that the international community and the United States as part of the international community is doing everything it can to support this reform agenda uh, that the Ukrainian government has embraced and has been uh, embraced by you know, huge legislative majorities in the, in the, in the uh, recently elected Ukrainian parliament. Uh, is there more that the United States should be doing? Are we satisfied with the IMF package? Are, are other countries coming forward with appropriate aid also? Um, we think that we have the right package right now. We are satisfied with the IMF package. Um, as you know, the United States um, had provided a $1 billion loan guarantee for Ukraine last year. We intend to provide another one in the first half of this year and working with Congress to consider a, another $1 billion loan guarantee at the end of this year. So we appreciate congressional support for that. In terms of other countries, we, uh, you know, we've had um, Europe and other bilateral donors increase their assistance to Ukraine in recent months. That's something that the senior officials within the Treasury as well as 
uh, the State Department have worked on and we're gonna continue to work on. We think that this government merits continued support not only from the United States, but from other countries and the international financial institutions. And, and, I, and I support the packages. I think we're doing the right thing, but I just urge us, and we're, our support for Ukraine must include accountability and progress being made in regards to go governance issues and human rights issues. And we have to make that very clear. We're, we'll be patient, but we won't have indefinite patience. There's gotta be demonstrate. They must demonstrate their ability to carry out their verbal commitments to their people, and we have to be tough about that. Uh, I would ask one last question, if I might, and that is the, an assessment of the OSCE mission. Uh, as you know, one of the hats I wear is uh, the ranking uh, Democrat on the Helsinki Commission. Can, you, can someone give me an assessment as to how effective the OSCE has been in Ukraine? Senator, well, first of all, thank you for the work that you do with the OSCE. I think this is, a, this is a tool of foreign policy and of European policy that was underutilized until the Ukraine crisis. Without the eyes and ears of the OSCE, I would not have been able to give the rundown that I gave of where things are going well and where things are going poorly in Ukraine at the beginning of this hearing. That said, as you know, uh, they are an unarmed force. They can only uh, operate in a permissive environment. So. Uh, that's been one of the challenges that they've had, whether it was getting in to secure the crash site after Malaysian Airlines 17, or whether it's been now working, uh, particularly in separatist-held areas, to get the kind of access that they need. So that's what we have to continue to work on. We are uh, trying to work now with European partners to make sure that every OSCE nation carries its weight in terms of fielding monitors, in terms of paying the budget increases that this requires, but also in, in terms of the specialized skills. We now need OSCE monitors who know the difference between a, 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 an X kind of artillery piece and a smirch rocket and that kind of thing. So we're working on all that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Isaac. Thank you, Chairman Corker. The Chairman and I were in a private meeting this morning, so I can't quote by name the individual, but it's a very well-respected journalist and commentator in America who has asked the question about what's the greatest threat to the United States security. Ironically, I, although acknowledging ISIL and obviously what we all know is going on in the Middle East, directly cited the threat of Putin to disrupt NATO and destroy NATO as the biggest threat to the United States and the world that he, as he saw it in the, out, in the outlying years. So. Uh, Secretary McKeon and Admiral Pandeloff, I'd like your opinion on that statement. Senator Isaacson, uh, I would in some respects defer to the IC in its judgment of current threats to the United States security in terms of the terrorist threat. ISIL is certainly a threat, AQAP and core al-Qaeda is still a threat to the United States uh, as are other uh, branches of al-Qaeda and, and ISIL. Uh, we are certainly worried about the negative trend of, of Russia and what it is doing, not just in Ukraine, but along Europe's borders. And it's the core of the reason we have taken a lot of the reassurance measures that we have and thinking hard about uh, making sure that the alliance commitment can be met, uh, not just through the United States, but through all of our NATO partners. Admiral. Senator, um, traditionally, uh, degree of threat is defined as capability and intent uh, in terms of capability, you know, the Russians are a world-class state with a world-class military. Uh, in terms of intent, it, that makes it even more important that, uh, that we do the kinds of initiatives we've talked about this morning to try to shape the intent to minimize the risk. 
Well, thank you for those answers. You know, one good benefit of older age, which I'm enjoying, is you have a long memory of experiences you went through in your life. One of the ones I went through was the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s. And there are some compare, I'm not drawing a total comparison, but it's some comparison to what Khrushchev did in trying to put missiles in Cuba and, and what Kennedy did in response and the potential of what's going on in the Ukraine. Because finally, President Kennedy put a blockade around Cuba and called Khrushchev's bluff. And when he did, Khrushchev pulled his missiles out and went home. I don't think we're at, a pay, at that place yet by any stretch of the imagination. But you all spend a lot of your careers looking into the future and saying, what if? And so I think a lot of what Senator Johnson was saying, what if things get worse? We need to be prepared to have, be able to have the same type of response to match the threat with the force necessary to thwart that threat. Am I right or wrong on that? Senator, in the Department of Defense, we're always worrying about the threats right in front of us, but also the threats in the future. And we do a lot of planning uh, to look out ahead. And the recent the military modernization of Russia and its activities in Central Europe have no doubt uh, got, got the mind focused on looking ahead at various permutations of what Russia might do. So that it's definitely an area of concern that we're giving a lot of thought and attention to in the department. Well, I know you have to be careful in your answer, and I'll get to you, Admiral, but, and I respect that and understand that. But I think it's a fair enough comparison to underscore the need that I think this committee feels in its entirety for us to look down at possible calculations down the line and be prepared to confront th power with power and threat with threat. Admiral? I would just like to underline what uh, Mr. McCune said, that, and, to, and to your point, Senator, I mean, readiness uh, is absolutely key to deterrence. Uh, it's fundamental to what we do, uh, and it's coupled to, as uh, Assistant Secretary uh, Newland has said, alliance solidarity. Those elements together are the best way to buy down risk and ensure stability and security. Secretary Newland, can I, I want to ask you a question for my own edification. Would you consider the Russia's use of its infinite supply of natural gas and oil soft power? Certainly its use of energy as a, as a weapon. I don't know if I would call it soft, but it's certainly a, 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 a tool of its influence and not always. But my question, I don't know the answer to this. This is not a loaded question. It's one that's going to show my ignorance probably. But had there been a counterbalance to the supply of petroleum and gas that Russia could supply in that part of the world, could that have thwarted what Russia has done in Ukraine and Crimea? Uh, well, I think their interest in controlling supplies of energy to Europe is a factor. There were many other factors at play in Russia's decisions that it made in Ukraine. But an alternative supply available to the Ukraine would have made possibly a difference in how far Russia went early on? Uh, and I'm not trying to bait you, I'm just trying to understand your... Yeah, I mean, I think if Ukraine had been able to be more energy independent earlier in its uh, period since independence from the Soviet Union, it would have had more resilience and it would have had uh, more uh, ability to, to resist. And that's one of the reasons why we're putting so much effort now in the bilateral program into... Uh, energy diversification, energy security for Ukraine, as well as for the rest of Europe. And the reason I ask the question is it's important for us to understand the, na the national defense interest of developing all the petroleum resources we can in the United States, so we have control to kind of balance what the Russians are able to do in Russia. Thank you all for your time and your interest. Thank you. Senator Kane. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to the witnesses. I want to pick up on where Senator Isaacson left off, and then I have some questions about the economy and energy issues. I, I've been a strong supporter of, of the economic sanctions against Russia, and I understand there's been earlier questions about the possibility of more sanctions in the energy sector. It does seem this is a, the, the economic tool that Russia uses most. So whether it's sanctions in the energy sector or helping nations that over-rely on Russia to have alternate sources of energy or to develop their own sources of energy. These are all strategies that I strongly support. But um, Senator Johnson made a comment, repeating some comments from a hearing last week, and I'm just interested in your theories about it. To the extent that we are more successful in economic sanctions, to the extent that extended an extended period of, of low oil prices, for example, puts economic pressure on Russia, there was some testimony hearing last week that that makes Russia more dangerous militarily. And I'm, I would be curious as, as to your thoughts on that. Uh, I'm a supporter of sanctions and energy pressure, but does that raise the risk of, of you know, uh, unpredictable uh, military behavior? Senator Kane, I don't know that it, it raises the risks or makes Russia more dangerous. Uh, it's hard to understate the provocations and action, dangers of the actions President Putin has already taken. Mm -hmm. He's gonna face some hard economic choices if oil prices stay down and capital flight continues and the ruble continues in the direction it's going. He's got a big investment in his military modernization. It's a big part of his budget. And uh, as I say, if the oil prices stay down, he's gonna to have to make some hard choices. If he continues to sustain those investments, there are gonna be some other costs, I suspect, in the social safety net in Russia. So he's gonna to have to weigh that in terms of his internal politics. I know it's a, not exactly a democracy, but he does have to pay attention to the, uh, what's going on in the country and public attitudes. Any different positions? So this is not something we should be overly concerned about if we decide to do more sanctions in the energy sector or take steps to help Ukraine and other nations diversify their energy portfolio? Then let's, let me follow up and ask about the, the question uh, or, or this issue of the internal Russian dynamic. There's been a lot of question of how much are the sanctions having an effect, how much are low, uh, low oil prices having an effect. Clearly, we've seen statistics about capital outflow, reduction in foreign direct investment, devaluation of the ruble, other economic effects. What is the, the best that you can tell me now in an unclassified setting about the combined effects of either sanctions on oil prices on the internal political dynamic in, in Russia today. Well, I think uh, Assistant Secretary Talui has given you some of the facts and figures that uh, this policy has wrought, not only uh, Russia's vulnerability to low oil prices because of their um, lack of economic diversification over the last 15 years, but also as a result of sanctions. I think, you know, we've yet to see what the political impacts will be, but we clearly can see from some of the statistics that Russian kitchen tables are being hit now uh, by these policy choices that the Kremlin are making. When you hear Assistant Secretary Tolui talk about inflation at 15 to 17 percent, when we have statistics of uh, skyrocketing food prices across uh, 
the, the Russian space, 20 to 40 percent in some places, when we know that average Russians are having difficulty paying for loans, for apartments, for cars, when we see uh, imports way down, it is affecting lifestyles. Now, that simply goes to the point that the Kremlin has prioritized their international adventure over the quality of life for their own people, and at what point that has a political effect, I think we've yet to see. The, um, the question about where will oil prices be in a year, um, you know, is something we should be wary uh, with respect to speculating, but there are people who have to make that speculation, folks who buy fuel for, you know, major uh, airlines, et cetera, have to do projections all the time, and some of their projections are that oil prices would stay in this low range for some extended period of time. Um, if we are a year from now and oil prices have stayed in basically this historically low level, talk a little bit about what you would predict that you would see in terms of the internal Russian economic dynamic, and then we can, we can draw the line between that and likely political uh, feelings. Senator Kane, thank you for that. Um, I think it's important to recognize that the, the uh, economic outcomes that we've seen in Russia have really been an interaction between what we've seen in oil and the impact of economic sanctions. Um, higher oil prices would, would definitely be a positive for the Russian economy. But I think it's relevant to look at what both Moody's and S&P have done to Russia's credit rating. You know, Russia has been downgraded to junk for the first time since 2003-2004. Now, the responsibility of agencies like Moody's and S&P is not to react to what the oil price is today, but to think about how Russia's economy is being managed, what the impact of sanctions is, and how that affects uh, the Russian government's ability uh, to, um, to meet its obligations, not only to foreign creditors, but for, to, to, uh, to its people. And so I think that if we saw higher oil prices, and, and I'm not gonna speculate on oil prices, um, like, uh, like you mentioned, but I think that, um, that even if we see oil prices rise, uh, the combination of economic mismanagement and the impact of sanctions uh, has cast this shadow on Russian economic prospects that is expected to persist. And one, one manifestation of that is the decision of the rating agencies to designate Russian debt as junk. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I don't have other questions. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Um, thank you all for being here. Uh, Secretary Newland, in your statement, you outline our goal as threefold. First, we want peace, then political normalization, and then ultimately the return to borders, which I imagine includes Crimea as well. The question that I have is how realistic, and, and the hope is that Minsk would offer that promise, with peace coming first as the precondition for all these things to be possible. The question that I have is how realistic is that goal, given the goals that Putin has himself? I think the goal, and unless any of you dispute this, I think the goal Putin has here is to basically, it's not just about Ukraine, it's about completely reorganizing the post-Cold War, post-Soviet era uh, order in Europe. And that, it's not just about Ukraine. And in, the, in that context, that's why he wants to weaken and divide and perhaps even uh, force NATO to fall apart. In fact, he's questioned why we even need a NATO anymore since there's no more Soviet Union. Uh, as part of furthering that goal, he's openly said that they believe they need to establish a sphere of influence, and not just throughout the former Soviet space, but also in former Warsaw Pact-type countries. 
this whole talk about protecting Russian speakers, this is just an excuse that he puts out there as a justification before the international community for moving forward. But ultimately, their, their goal, their ultimate goal here is to carve out, to reorder the post-Soviet order in the region and to carve out for Russia a strategic space that, that for themselves of influence. It, it, and so in light of that, why should we have any hope that these ceasefires are actually going to hold, given we know what his ultimate goal is? Now, he may agree to a temporary ceasefire as a tactical move, maybe hopefully to split us off from the Europeans, in essence, hoping for us. And, and, and maybe that's why there's been arguments that we shouldn't go on sanctions alone, because it could cause a friction with the European Union and split us from them. Uh, in that regard, but, but at the end of the day, he may agree to a ceasefire temporarily, either to consolidate gains they've already made, or to perhaps try to create a, a point of friction between uh, hoping that we'll jump out ahead of the Europeans and create that as a division. But ultimately, his goal, unquestionably, is to completely rearrange the order in this area and carve out for Russia a sphere of influence. So why, how is it even realistic, given knowing that about him, to think that he's ever going to allow stabilization to return to Ukraine and that he's ever going to return back to their borders, given we know what their goal is. I mean, if one, he's a criminal and a thug, but he's also a very determined one who has shown the willingness to act out in furtherance of a strategic goal. So why should I feel optimistic that there's any chance of that happening, given, given the goal he has now, unless the cost-benefit analysis changes for him? Senator, I'm not going to dispute any of your analysis. I'm simply going to say that Minsk is a test for Russia. Russia signed it. The separatists signed it. It's also a choice for Russia. If fully implemented, it would bring back uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity in the east. It doesn't obviously address Crimea. So now we have to test. And as I said at the beginning, the record is already mixed today. And we have to be ready, both for um, the opportunity for success, but also to impose more costs, significant costs on Russia with our European partners if Minsk is violated, either because the agreement's not implemented or because there's a further land grab or because the separatists are further armed. And that's what we're watching. So in furtherance of that question, if in fact this is a test, what is wrong with now laying out clearly exactly what we're going to do if that test has failed? In essence, if this test fails, we're gonna arm the Ukrainians with, by, by the way, as a sovereign country, Ukraine has a right to defend itself, not just against Russian aggression or separatist aggression, but any aggression. If, in fact, we're trying to, to strengthen uh, the, the, the writ of that government, uh, part of that is allowing them to provide for their own defense. But, so we should be doing that anyways. But is, is it the position of the administration that we're going to lay out a clear picture, hopefully with our European partners, about what the specific sanctions will be and what specific military aid will provide if Russia fails the Minsk test? Uh, Senator, I think in my opening I made clear that we are working now with the Europeans to lay out concrete sanctions costs if Minsk is not implemented or further violated. Uh, we generally don't signal those in advance, but we make clear that we are uh, prepared and that's what we're working on. With regard to security assistance, we are continuing to evaluate that based on the situation on the ground and implementation of Minsk will very much be part of that. Can you comment on whether denying Russia access to the SWIFT system is something that's been discussed? Um, we actually generally don't discuss in a public forum uh, any specific measures. Um, 
but we discuss a whole range of things as we're evaluating it. We look at both the impact that it would have on Russia, as well as the spillovers that it would have on the global economy, the United States, and our European partners. But I don't want to comment on any specific action. Irrespective, my last question, I guess, this is more of a, I know that it's, maybe I don't expect you to comment on this, but irrespective of whether Russia adheres to Minsk or not, is it not, if, if in fact we want to stabilize Ukraine, isn't part of that stabilization to give them the ability to defend themselves in the future from any other aggression that may exist? In essence, there are other countries that haven't been invaded who we provide military assistance to and defense assistance to because we understand that the absence of it invites aggression in the future. I just want to know why is it a bad idea to provide them defense assistance irrespective? Uh, and I know that's being reviewed, but Mike, is there an argument to be made against providing defensive weapons to a country irrespective of how the ceasefire turns out uh, uh, since we're trying to help them stabilize their government and as part of that it has to be the ability to provide for their national defense. Uh, Senator Rubio, as you know, we have provided a, a range of security assistance in the non-lethal categories which have met real Ukrainian security requirements because the armed forces were not fully stripped bare but they were left rather lacking by the corruption of the last regime. And I expect long past this crisis, we will have a defense partnership with the government of Ukraine. Uh, but at the present time, as, you, as Assistant Secretary Newland said, uh, defensive lethal weapons are being reviewed, but it's not something on offer at, at the present time. And my last question is, um, I've heard some commentary that even among Putin's critics within Russia, there are those who do not support giving defensive weapons to Ukraine because ultimately that would lead to the death of Russians uh, and they can't support that. I read that yesterday. I think the Washington Post reported or had some commentary from some of Putin's opponents. So here's my question. If there, Putin says there are no Russian troops in Ukraine. Therefore, if we provided, if, if that's true, he has nothing to worry about, right? As I made clear in my opening, uh, not only do we believe that there are Russian forces in Ukraine, we believe that they are responsible for command and control, arming, financing, directing of this conflict. We also believe that there are uh, many hundreds of Russian dead in Ukraine and that it does pose a vulnerability for uh, the Kremlin politically at home because they are denying they're even active there. I'm sorry, just one quick point. I, I read in your statement, maybe you didn't say this publicly because you had to shorten your statement. Is it not accurate that as these coffins are returning and these bodies are returning to Russia, Russian families of the dead soldiers are being told not to comment on it or they'll be denied death benefits? Yes, and I did say that publicly okay. here. Thank you. Thank you. I know Senator Menendez uh, had a closing question for this panel. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all for your testimony. Madam Secretary, uh, the Budapest Memorandum was basically a way to entice the Ukrainians to give up their nuclear weapons. Is that a fair statement? Ranking Member Menendez, at the time, the primary intent was for Russia to get Russia to assure Ukraine that it would not seek to take advantage of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity if it gave up its weapons. So Ukraine sought that political guarantee primarily from Russia, and it is that guarantee that Russia has violated. There was never an intent to have treaty obligations uh, no, with I, regard to I, I gather that from your answer to Senator Murphy. You said it was a political agreement, right? 
Yes? Yes. All right, so, so we also, however, signed that political agreement. And so while you say the concern for Ukraine was Russia uh, not seeking to attack it if in, or to interfere with its territorial integrity, if it did what? If it gave up its nuclear weapons, right? That's the, the essence of what was induced from the Ukrainians. Is that not fair to say? It whether, is, whether it was that they wanted the guarantee from Russia and we just joined with Great Britain and others to sort of like give them further comfort in this political agreement, it was to give up their political weapons, because their political arms, because otherwise, I'm sorry, their nuclear arms, because otherwise there is no reason for such an agreement. Senator, they also sought assurance from the other two nuclear powers, the United States and Great Britain, that we would not seek to exploit Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity. And we obviously have not done right. that. So that was the, the structure the of the But the whole purpose of it was to guarantee territorial integrity and not uh, to face uh, the threat from any of these powers if it did what? give up its nuclear weapons. Is that correct? I don't know why we're dancing around Of course, no, of course. I, it's uh, about giving up their nuclear of weapons. Of course, and they right, did so, that. So how is this political agreement different than the one we are trying to strike with Iran? Isn't basically the agreement we are trying to strike with Iran a political agreement? Because it's not a treaty obligation, the administration has said. Um, I'm not, as you know, qualified to get into the interstices of, of the deal that we're trying to strike with Iran. I think I'll leave that to the folks in the administration who work on Iran, if you Well, how, how, how I'm, I'm not asking you about the intricacies of the agreement. Uh, that's for another time with another panel. The question is, it seems to me that what we have heard from the administration as it relates to Iran is to say that it is not going to be a treaty, therefore the Congress has no need to have a say, it's going to be basically a political agreement. And if that is the case, then we need to know the nature of what that means as I see it unfolding here in the Budapest Memorandum, which was a political agreement uh, ultimately to entice the Ukrainians to give up their nuclear weapons, which they did, with a understanding that all of these powers were not going to affect its territorial integrity, which in the case of Russia has been violated. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't see the difference, uh, and I do think it's very much on point. So it, it raises concerns for me as to where we're going in that regard, but I, you tell me you're not capable of answering that question, so I'll accept well, your Well, let me just say that with regard to the Budapest political commitment, the United States of America lived up to its commitments under Budapest. So if the concern is whether the United States honors political commitments as, as it honors treaties, I think one can be reassured by our behavior vis-a-vis -vis Budapest. I can't speak to other nations. Yeah, we, ha we have certainly, nor did we ever have any intention of interfering with Ukraine's territorial integrity. The reason that we joined is to give comfort, support, and uh, I think the Ukrainians would think that in fact that political agreement with these three powers, uh, because I doubt the Ukrainians ever thought that we were going to somehow invade their territory, was in fact that we would be supportive of their security and their territorial integrity. Uh, but that, at this point, while we certainly have not done anything to interfere with its integrity, I think the Ukrainians would feel far short of what that agreement meant. 
And so, and in terms of its actual implementation. And so, at the end of the day, it's a political agreement that can be interpreted as those who signed it wish to interpret it. And that's, uh, I think, a, a challenging proposition. I uh, very much appreciate the line of questioning that our ranking member just put forth. I, I have to say this, is, uh, this has been a very good hearing. We thank all of you for your testimony. It has been very unsatisfying uh, to me. I uh, would ask the secretary, who does meet with people uh, constantly around the world, surely on the heels of us never doing the things we said we would do with the Free Syrian rebels. And now the world being very aware of this Budapest Memorandum and knowing that the administration, I assume that this is another decision memo that sits on the president's desk undecided. Um, this has to have affected our credibility with others around the world. I'd, I'd love to have your sense of that and how damaging our lack of ability to make simple decisions. They certainly have complex outcomes, but the decisions themselves are relatively simple, um, certainly highly supported by Congress. Um, so we're all in this together should a decision be made, but I would just like to get your sense of how badly on the heels again of what we never did in Syria, on the heels of a red line that was never adhered to, uh, and this particular issue, which is so important uh, to, to world stability, I'd love to get your sense of how this is affecting us with, with others. Well, Chairman, I would say with regard to my patch, uh, Europeans do see the strong bipartisan, bicameral support for Ukraine, whether it's on the economic side or on the security side, and frankly, per capita, we've done, uh, well, I don't want to say per capita, but we've done uh, far more than most nations in the transatlantic space to support Ukraine, and I do think that our leadership in this is recognized. Um, we are having as spirited a debate as is ongoing inside the administration on some of these security support questions. There's also a transatlantic debate. So that question gets asked also in our diplomacy. But it, Europeans come at it from both sides, depending upon where they sit. Well, um, we're going to have the record open for questions and move into a second panel. I would just say that uh, I have very much enjoyed our conversations. Uh, you've been very forward. Um, with your statements regarding Ukraine and the things that, that need to be done, and that has been appreciated uh, very much by, by most of us. I would have, at this point, significant difficulty uh, coming to work each day uh, with these decisions lingering in the way that they have and us, uh, again, not taking the steps that, that uh, many people within the administration, as I understand it, feel needs to be taken, and yet uh, we continue for some reason um, not to do those things that uh, 
we've uh, acted as if we might do. So I have a number of other questions that I'll send in writing, and I thank each of you for being here. I realize that uh, in all cases, y'all are messengers and not the ones that have these decision memos sitting in on your desk unheralded, but uh, we thank you for your service to our country and appreciate your, your candid testimony. And with that, um, we'll move to the second panel. Our first witness uh, is former Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs and former U.S. Ambassador to Germany, John Kornblum. Our second and final witness on this panel is former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine and Director of the Eurasia Center at Atlantic Journal, John Herbst. Um, and as y'all are getting seated and comfortable, uh, we, will, uh, we will begin with Ambassador Kornblum. Ambassador Kornblum, I do want to thank you for being here in particular. I know you're a resident of Nashville, Tennessee, and we're always glad to have really bright people from Nashville, Tennessee here testifying. With that, if you'd begin, we'd appreciate it. Thank you very much. I have also, you might even be more pleased to learn, <clears throat> a very direct contact with another city you know, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Mr. Mayor Burke is going to be at a meeting that I'm organizing in Berlin in three weeks to talk about the um, tremendous success that Chattanooga has had in revitalizing the city and in uh, supporting entrepreneurship there. And I think you had a little bit to do with that. I've heard that anyway from history. And so uh, I'm very pleased to be here, both because of my tie to Tennessee and um, also because um, these are issues that I worked upon very uh, uh, a lot in the 1990s. I was the Assistant Secretary during this whole period of all these memorandum and these agreements and everything and participated in the negotiation of most of them, not the Budapest paper, but most of the others. And so to you and also to Ranking Member Menendez, I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, I have a very special point to make. You've heard in very extremely good detail, if not our satisfying detail, about how our government sees things. But I think there's one thing that we need to think about, which Senator Rubio in, in particular talked about, and that is the, the direction of this conflict and the definition of this conflict. Um, my own view is, and I've been living in Germany for a long time now, after I stopped being ambassador, and I think that I can say with a certain amount of accuracy that Whatever we are doing in Ukraine and with Russia, we are losing the public affairs battle on this crisis, the narrative, as we say, in the journalistic world. It, the, the, the narrative that is most prevalent in the United States to a considerable extent, but more so even in Europe, is that this is a Russia which is reacting angrily because it was uh, cheated, ill-used, misused by the West after 1990. 
And I think it is important that we focus on this fact because many of the decisions, and I'll say, I'm going to say a couple points about that, which are going to be taken in the future will depend considerably on whether the Russians believe that they have the upper hand on this aspect of the crisis and whether we, in fact, can maintain a strong situation, a strong direction. The fact is that after 1990, we dealt with the Russian leadership which saw the, foreign, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union as a liberation and not as a uh, Western uh, attack on Russia. And they knew exactly what our plans were. We talked to them in great detail about it. We didn't talk to them about the details of NATO enlargement or EU enlargement, but we certainly told them that our goal for them and for Europe was to establish democracy, establish free market systems, and to allow Russia to join the Western world. And on many of the discussions I had, Ambassador Harps was along, and I think he can uh, attest to this. We worked very hard to uh, make this point not only clear, but to establish things to make it real. And now, 20, 25 years later, for me, the narrative of this crisis is not whether Russia somehow is now a wounded power, but the fact that the United States, it, two administ three administrations, in connection also working with the Congress, have established between the Baltic states and uh, now hopefully Ukraine also and the South, a community of nearly a billion persons which is democratic, which is secure, which is oriented towards free markets, and which wants to be part of the Western and the Atlantic world. Now, I say this so precisely because we have to remember what the situation was 25 years ago. 25 years ago, we had the Western part of the continent democratized. The Eastern part was, to put it mildly, a mess. When we first came in to establish relations with the new governments in Poland and Czechoslovakia, Hungary, we found that they had, had hardly any of the basic conditions for modern industrial Western society. And so the, the cooperation within NATO and with strong leadership of these countries has, uh, in fact, succeeded. And the, the, many of the reasons that we have this conflict with Russia right now is not because Ukraine violated orders or not because Russia has has somehow felt threatened by the West. It is because Russian, the leadership in Russia after the beginning of this century has covered its own misdeeds, its own poor performance with an increasingly authoritarian <coughs> system. And they are finding that the countries on their periphery, but also until recently much of their population wanted to join the West and not to maintain an Eastern orientation. This is a basic point, and it leads to strategy, however. It suggests, for example, that entering into negotiations with the Russians over how to conclude this crisis are not very relevant at the moment. There isn't any new security system which we can offer the Russians, which wouldn't include giving them a sphere of influence in these very countries we're trying to protect. There isn't any military arrangement which we can in, in, in enter with the Russians, 
which wouldn't somehow limit our ability to defend these countries to the East who have helped to become democratic. There isn't any new political forum which we can think up which would change the fact that the real reason that, the, that Putin and his cohorts and Russia in general feel threatened at the moment is not because of anything we've done and not because of NATO sanctions even, although I favor them, but because of things such as, it's all been discussed here today, the oil price, Russia's lack of investment in the high-tech high sector, uh, Russia's inability to build the infrastructure ne necessary for a modern industrial economy, et cetera, et cetera. It also, I think, has to do with the fact that Russia, Mr. Harris is more of an expert on this than I am, has in fact also failed to uh, have the political leadership since 2000, which helped its population come out of the shock of the end of the Cold War and to understand how closely its interests are involved with, with being part of the West. So we have a situation now which is important for all the reasons that uh, our government officials mentioned to you today. They have gave, I thought, a very comprehensive view of what's going on. But we are, in, in effect, facing an even larger challenge, a challenge which is not only a challenge to Europe, but a challenge actually across the entire world. And that is that Russia is, whether consciously or by accident, is taking account of a growing unease around the world at the dislocations caused by what's called globalization, what's called the, what is the modern information technology world, what is happening with the dislocation of industries, et cetera, et cetera. And that the, the Russians have been able to harness this dissatisfaction in their own country. But I can tell you with, shall I say, a lot of experience. I've been living in Berlin now for 17 years and I'm still very politically active there that these arguments are also having an effect in Western Europe. And they're also having an effect, as you know, in other parts of the world. Added to that, one of the senators mentioned it, Russia is financing uh, with very large efforts um, movements in Western Europe who are anti-democratic, who are trying to undermine the Western system. And Russia is also uh, continuing to threaten in one way or the other, the weakest points of our system, such as the Baltic states, such as the Republic of Georgia, where I was uh, worked quite diligently uh, in recent years. And so we are facing not just the question, and it's a very important question, I uh, might add that um, I will mention to Senator Murphy that my wife grew up in the Ukrainian community in Hartford, Connecticut, and so she is uh, very oriented towards Ukraine, has been an election observer there twice already. And so we are very committed to Ukraine, but the real challenge of this crisis is that Russia, after immense efforts on the part of the West, and I must say really immense efforts, has broken out of the channel of unity and cooperation among the countries of Europe, and is now adapting an anti-Western, but ultimately that means anti-globalization and anti-American approach. And to understand the importance of this, there was an extremely good article uh, in the Washington Post this week, 
talking about the, um, the rhetoric that's being used inside China about the West, and it turns out to be almost word for word the same rhetoric that Russia is using. The same rhetoric is heard in the Middle East. And even in India, which we consider to be a very important partner, Putin has been visiting, and he, the Indian leadership, uh, more or less agreed with many of the things he was saying. So we're talking here not just about a problem with Russia, which is an, an important one. We're talking, in fact, and that's why I mentioned Senator Rubio, about uh, wearing away at the foundations of the Western community in Europe, but even more so, a wearing away of the ability that the West is going to have to, to influence, control, if you will, the content of the new globalized world which is coming up. And so that's the, the main consequence that I see in this, in this conflict. And my, only, my final point would be, I am very appreciative of your personal efforts to increase our information budgets, to have Radio Liberty and Radio Free Europe be more active. And I think that winning back the narrative and using tools such as the ones that you're financing is almost as important as considering military uh, support for Ukraine, which I support very strongly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ambassador. Uh, Chairman Corker, um, Ranking Member Menendez, thank you very much for this chance to testify. It's an honor to be here. I've been asked to talk about... It's, I think it's... Sorry. <laughs> okay. I've been asked to talk about Kremlin aggression in Ukraine and how to counter it. But in order to take the subject on properly, we need a wider lens. The reason for this is simple. There are influential people in the United States, and especially in Europe, who do not understand the gravity of this crisis. They don't understand it because they think the crisis is simply about Ukraine and Moscow's aggression there. With that narrow understanding, they oppose the strong measures necessary to counter Kremlin aggression and to secure vital, and I mean vital, American interests, not simply important interests. The crisis that we face is as I think almost every senator today said, a crisis of Kremlin revisionism. Mr. Putin does want to overturn the post-Cold War order established in Europe and Eurasia. This order has been the foundation of the unprecedented peace and prosperity that not just Europe, but the entire world has enjoyed, enjoyed over the past 25 years. Mr. Putin has stated that he must have a sphere of influence in the post-Soviet space, not just the post-Russian world, but going into the Warsaw Pact countries, and that he has the right to protect ethnic Russians and Russian speakers wherever they reside. Mr. Putin has major resources to pursue aggression. He possesses the world's sixth largest economy, one of the world's two largest nuclear arsenals, and far and away the strongest military in Europe. And we all know Mr. Putin has committed multiple acts of aggression in Georgia in 2008, in Crimea early last year, and since April of last year, he's been conducting an increasingly overt, covert war in Ukraine's east. In this covert war in Ukraine's east, he has escalated his intervention multiple times. He has agreed to two ceasefires, Minsk I and Minsk II, and violated each one of them. His goal in Ukraine is what the Admiral said earlier today, to destabilize the country. But to achieve that, and this is not clearly understood, he cannot, he cannot settle for a frozen conflict. He needs to be regularly on the offensive, albeit with tactical pauses. 
He has made clear by his statements and his actions that if he succeeds in Ukraine, there will be future targets. The targets may include NATO allies, specifically Estonia and Latvia, where ethnic Russians and Russian speakers comprise 25% of the population. Recent Kremlin provocations include the kidnapping of an Estonian intelligence official from Estonia. And, and that happened on the day that the NATO summit ended last September. They've also included the seizure of a Lithuanian ship from international waters of the Baltic Sea. He is telling the Baltic states and all the states in his neighborhood, you are not secure, even if you are members of NATO. We have a vital interest, and again, I use that word vital, in stopping Moscow's revanchist policies before they move to other countries, especially to the Baltic states. I think it was Senator Isaacson who thought, who said that the Kremlin menace is the most important national security danger we face today. I endorse that wholeheartedly. ISIL is a ragtag bunch of terrorists, a serious danger to individual Americans, not an existential threat to the United States. A revanchist Moscow is an existential threat to the United States. Even Iran with its nuclear program is not in the same order of threat as the world's, one of the world's two largest nuclear powers on the, on the move. If Western leaders clearly understand this danger, if they clearly understood it, they would devote substantially more resources to dealing with it, and they would draw a bright red line in Ukraine. Stop Putin in Ukraine before he moves beyond Ukraine. To date, Western policy has been slow, reactive, and all too concerned about giving Mr. Putin a graceful way out of the crisis and not sufficiently focused on imposing costs that would make it too expensive for him to continue his aggression. We had a very distinguished panel um, in the first two hours of this session, but they were all too reflective of slow, reactive approach. To persuade Mr. Putin to put aside his revisionist dreams, we need to do things that pay on his weaknesses. Strong sanctions are part of this. We have to deal with Mr. Putin's economy. We must persuade Mr. Putin that by announcing strong additional sanctions for aggression to come, I think it was Senator Rubio who said, why can't we tell Mr. Putin now what, sections, what sanctions we will play down if he moves beyond the current ceasefire line? He asked a very good question. We need to have sanctions in place now for if he moves again. That way, it may deter him, but if it doesn't, it will clearly weaken his economy, weaken his political support at home, and give him fewer resources for his next aggression. I give the Obama administration pretty good marks for dealing with sanctions, because they're trying to pull along a somewhat reluctant Europe. The other area we need to work on is on the security side. Uh, Mr. Putin has a serious vulnerability. The Russian people do not want Russian troops fighting in Ukraine. That's why he's lying to them. That's why the Russian dead that come back are buried in secret. That's why the families of the Russian dead are, are told, if you tell the neighbors that these folks, your sons, fought and died in Ukraine, you will not get benefits. If we provide defensive lethal equipment to Ukraine, we, that means that either Mr. Putin will be deterred from going further into Ukraine, because he does not want to risk the casualties, the political fallout of the casualties, or if he goes further into Ukraine, he suffers those casualties, his support in Ukraine, excuse me, at home, will weaken. 
This is a compelling reason to give weapons to Ukraine. Some people who argue against this say, if we do that, he will simply escalate. Perhaps. But if he escalates, again, he suffers more casualties, he weakens his support, and he has fewer resources with which to pursue aggression beyond Ukraine. Um, I was one of a group of eight former officials who produced a report on this. Uh, we suggest giving Ukraine $1 billion a year for the next, each of the next three years, $3 billion of weapons total. The report provides the details. I want to mention to this committee just two, two elements of that. One, we should be providing anti-armor equipment because the Russians have used mass tanks in order to commit their aggression in Ukraine. We should also be providing counter-battery radar for missiles because Ukrainians have suffered 70% of their casualties from Russian missiles. We are giving them counter-battery radar for mortars they needed for missiles. We also need to keep in place the sanctions for the seizure of Crimea. And I should add the Atlantic Council just released a report on substantial systematic Ukrainian, excuse me, Russian human rights violations in Crimea. Two other essential elements of our policy. We need to do more in NATO to bolster the deterrence to Russian aggression against the Baltic states. The administration and NATO have taken some good steps forward. Uh, the Wales Summit talked about deploying, uh, creating this rapid reaction force and deploying a company of soldiers to the Baltic states. That's a nice first step, but it's very small. We should put a battalion into Estonia and the other Baltic states properly armed as a serious tripwire against further Russian aggression. We need to make sure that NATO has a contingency plan dealing for a possible Russian hybrid war in the Baltic states, especially vulnerable is Narva in Estonia, which is a Russian-speaking enclave. Finally, we need to do the right thing in the information war against Russia. John already mentioned that. I know that this committee supports additional funding for um, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Uh, this is important to offsetting the massive Russian propaganda campaign. These four steps, enhanced sanctions, military supplies to Ukraine, a much stronger military posture in NATO's east, and a ramped up information effort will give us a good, good start in stopping Mr. Putin in Ukraine, making sure he doesn't go beyond Ukraine. Again, this is a vital American interest. Thank you both for outstanding testimony, and I'm going to defer uh, questions at this moment to Senator Menendez. <clears throat> well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for your service to our country at different times, and always a pleasure to welcome another Tennessean here to the hearing room. You have a great Tennessean here as the chairman, and uh, you should all be very proud of him. Um, Ambassador Herps, uh, let me just ask you, uh, I think you laid out a pretty compelling case and probably done it better than I've been successful in trying to do in terms of the importance of it. You spent time in Kiev as our ambassador. You had a lot of opportunities to observe uh, President Putin's behavior towards his neighbors. If I were to ask you to, and you largely, I think, already referred to his intentions, but 
Would you expect, for example, if unchecked, Russian forces to move into Maripol? Mr. Putin cannot accept a frozen conflict. A frozen conflict is a bad outcome. But with a frozen conflict, Ukraine could develop as a stable, democratic, prosperous state. And that's what Mr. Putin's against. So he has to move beyond the area he currently controls. Mariupol is the most likely target, but not the only one. He could move further into, uh, into the northern parts of the Donbass. The Russians have been conducting a terror campaign in Kharkiv. Kharkiv is arguably the second most important city in the whole country. But they've been unable to establish a, a clear, the Russians have been able to establish a clear presence there. But they, could, they will, they will um, probe there. They'll move wherever they can with the least casualties to themselves and the least uproar in Europe. We need to provide Ukraine the means to stop that from happening. Otherwise, he will continue to go forward. Let me ask you to answer two questions that are also often poised in a contrary view to mine, that providing defensive uh, lethal weapons to Ukraine would create serious problems with Europe, or that providing uh, such weapons would just lead Russia to further escalate. What would you say in response to those questions? I'll start with the second, because the answer is quicker. Mr. Putin has escalated half a dozen times precisely because he has not had any pushback. You push back, I'm not going to say he won't escalate. We don't know. But the chances of him escalating go down. So that's the, first, the second question. The first question. Um, I watched very carefully the Chancellor Merkel's visit to Washington in February. She said, quote, that she opposes sending weapons to Ukraine. She also said that if the United States were to do that, she would work hard to make sure that there's no transatlantic disharmony. That is an amber light, a light which we can go through, because she understands the United States may ultimately make the intelligent decision to provide Ukraine the weapons to defend itself. I don't have any doubt that we could manage the alliance in this. What you need is strong leadership, which unfortunately we have not seen. Strong leadership from Washington in Europe, in NATO. With that, this is manageable. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> well, gentlemen, I, I uh, apologize for not having questions at this moment. I've got to get to a meeting at 1245. This has been a very long but a very informative meeting. I want to thank you both for your testimony, and if you would, uh, we will have some written questions we'd like for you to respond to. I do think the strategy that you've laid out, Ambassador, is very clear, very helpful. I think, uh, uh, Ambassador Kornblum, the insights into what's driving Russia were also very helpful. We appreciate both both of you for your service to our country, for being here uh, as an asset to us as we try to serve our country. Um, and, uh, and with that, uh, this meeting, uh, the questions, I guess, will be open until March the 12th. Uh, so if people have questions, they can uh, send those in, and hopefully you'll respond promptly to those. Uh, we thank you again for being here. The meeting is adjourned.